Welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Sula Spirit singing uh, Humanity, a uh, tribute to um, uh, the Orisha uh, Babalu Aye. And um, played this first on the air uh, during the uh, 15th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, uh, which was the 29th of August, and wow, 15 years have passed and not much has changed, and I thought today um, on California Admissions Day, we talk about when California became a uh, official state member of this union, um, it'd be a good day, you know, to talk about humanity and and some of the uh, compromises to certain people's 
humanity that happened when California became a member of the union. And uh, Kubaka, Michael Harris, is always the person who's like, you know, pulling my coat saying, yeah, this is happening, you know, this historic, you know, moment in our history. So good morning, Kubaka. Uh, Michael Harris, how are you? I am wonderful. Uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I'm still looking for your bio. Um, so maybe you could tell us first, sort of how how you became so interested in history, particularly you know history of of African people, Black people in California, and you know Black farmers, and you know before there was such a thing as food deserts and um, and uh, food security, there was you. I mean, you, you, we've been talking about this like, wow, I remember when uh, the United States wasn't protecting um, black farmers and they were losing their land, and, and you were like, that's how you became, you know, sort of the black farmer, farmers that, you know, that particular sort of uh, name that got associated with you because you were really advocating for the black farmers, particularly, you know, black farmers in California, but black farmers across the nation and the importance of food security, you know, via, you know, African diaspora people here. And just wondering, you know, and you're a veteran. Um, We've had you on lots of times. But every time we have you on, we know we're going to, like, be hearing some great African black American history centered in California, and you're right there at the Capitol, you know, you're in Sacramento. So if you could tell us a little bit about, give us a little background about yourself and your interests, and what is California Admissions Day today? What are we, what are we remembering? What are we honoring? Well, that, that's, a, that's a big uh, paintbrush you give me, and, um, well, I'll start like this. Um, it's always being grounded in, in, in who we are, the blood that flows in my veins, or ancestors. I'm, I'm hearing, you know, one of my elder teachers, uh, Minister Michaelisi, is talking about Septepi, which means when being came into being uh, first time. And so that flows in my veins. So as a child growing up in, in Sacramento, born in Sacramento, um, you know, the capital was my playground. I mean, my father was an intern at the state capitol uh, under Lieutenant Governor Reinecke when Ronald Reagan was the governor. Now, I wasn't there when the Panthers took over. I was probably somewhere else. But that was the era that I grew up and was running around the capitol, you know, bringing yourself here at this place at a certain time. But the rest of the time, I have my run of the state capitol. You know, as you know, three, four-year-old kid learn how to read and so, you know, I, that portion of it uh, being, you know, fr- very friendly, very uh, knowledgeable of what's in the state capital, well, I was just something that, you know, was uh, kind of like breathing. I mean, I knew my way around the capital before I knew my way around, you know, the bases playing baseball. You know, it's just the way I was raised. But my ancestors come through Alabama on my mom's side, come through Louisiana, and good food was always part of the equation because it was fresh right in the garden. And even though you know I live in Sacramento, California, as soon as I crossed the threshold of my of, of the house, I might as well have been in, deep in the bush of Alabama because 
wasn't nothing different. <laughs> so that's nothing different. Uh, the same way when we went back to visit. Uh, the only thing different, I went to school and it was all white folks at school. But at church it was all black. At home it was all black. And certainly uh, the culture was uh, steeped in the deep south. Uh, so agriculture was just part of my life growing up. And, I, you know, I have a pretty good relationship with the soil. And, I mean, just being attentive to the plants, you know, you, you know, it's, it's easy to get a good crop. So, you know, I, I came through agriculture by way of history uh, because I wanted to know more. And as things were uh, presented to me, and I was like, well, why, how come uh, I'm the only one knowing this? This don't make no sense because I was, you know, a pretty voracious reader, but it was not presented, you know, in the school system. And so the things I was exposed to were outside of the regular education experience uh, of my friends, of my peers, and nobody knew what I was talking about. And so it's it's kind of like continued that way to today because, I I mean, I do have the best teachers on planet Earth, you know, and uh, just blessed that way. So I'm, I'm able to synthesize a lot of things that most people just aren't exposed to, you know, and to be short with it. Uh, like ASCAT conferences and having relationship, 20-year relationship with, you know, Oba Tashaka and, you know, Wade Nobles and, you know, Francis Quest Welsing. I mean, sit for hours sitting with a personal personal time. And, you know, carrying Queen Nzinga bag, you know, she's the last one that I'm aware of that's able to herd all these giants of uh, scholarship on the planet Earth uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, the last time I saw her. But it's it's like, when you're given these blessings, you have to figure out how to give back. So, you know, I've paid the price to give back, but the gifts, you know, I mean, you can't even begin to quantify it, the opportunities that uh, I've been exposed to. So agriculture, uh, in the Department of Agriculture, uh, personal relationships with ag secretaries uh, at the state level, at the national level, and, you know, to the to the degree that, you know, there's, I don't, I, I, I don't have a problem saying anything to them. If we get contentious, well, that's what it's going to get because our experience here in America is just that. And particularly here in California, uh, we just, um, I mean, today is California Missions Day. Uh, most people have no idea today is the birthday of California. And if you say it happened in 1850, they're like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, how do you think California became a state? And, you know, there's a big, there's crickets. It's not taught in the schools. It's all around us, but we don't want to deal with it because we're talking about, uh, you know, compromising uh, people's humanity, and that's the legacy of California. And so we just don't talk about it. Uh, And now that all of a sudden Black Lives Matter uh, to the world, now's the time to talk about the state of California is named after a black woman, you know, Queen Calafia. And if you look at the state capitol, you know, she's there, prominent at the top in the California history room, but nobody talks about her. If you blow up her picture, you see that she's a light-skinned sister because she's got heavily influenced with uh, native indigenous uh, blood, but she has an astrolabe in her hand, and that's clearly, you know, from Andalusia, Spain. 
uh, it's Moorish influence. So why is that in her hand? So obviously she probably Khalifa, you know, it's it's a title uh, in you know the uh, languages of you know a Islamic you know culture. So but so that's part of California. We don't talk about. And, of course, the slaughter, the genocide of the Native American, we don't talk about that. The, probably the most egregious genocide on the, in the Western Hemisphere was here in California. And certainly the slave enslavement of people of African descent, <laughs> we can't even get the Legislative Black Caucus in 2020 to articulate that conversation. Uh, the slave trade that happened right here in Sacramento, you know, the slave auction blocks, you know, in old Sacramento. That's like beyond. We can't talk about that. It's in the history books. It's in those state libraries and the archives. Why is it too difficult to talk about today? And that, that's you know, one of the things that we're going to insist upon as we have this quote unquote reparations conversation. We can't even agree on what the history has been. It's going to be difficult. Right, yeah. Wow, thank you so much for that 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 broad brush. Um, yeah, I did give you a whole lot in one <laughs> one swoop, but you pulled it together very very well, uh, as you always do. So I'm reading. Um, I I linked to this in the uh, description about California Admissions Day. It says. Um, in 1849, leaders from around the future state of California drafted California's first constitution, which was approved on November 13th that year, 1849, by a vote of 12,064 uh, to 811 votes. In January 1850, the state legislature began its first two-year session. On September 9, 1850, California became the 31st entry into the Union. On September 9, 1924, California's bear flag flew over the White House to honor the date of California's admission. Uh, in 1984, however, Governor George uh, Dugmajan signed legislation changing its observance to a personal option. In recent times, Californian governors have made public proclamations inviting the public to observe the day. So this is the 170th anniversary of the birthday of this state. And when I was reading up on Admissions Day and about the origins of this nation of this state, um, what came up a lot was the Fugitive Slave Act and um, how 2,000 people of African descent in this state they might have been brought to this state as enslaved persons, but um, during this period of California's um, becoming a member of the Union uh, and sort of cheating Mexico out of um, its uh, land holdings, you know, California, Arizona, Texas, and was there a third, a fourth one? Um, oh, yeah. Um, it's the Treaty of Guadalupe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's about, right. it's about eight states. Yeah. Eight states. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, during that period of time, that was when gold, in quotation marks, was discovered, and <laughs> uh, and so people of African descent, um, because of this Fugitive Slave Act, if 
they were all they were rounded up and sold into slavery, like free people, people with like a lot of money that they had earned, you know, during the gold rush and had put up. And so I was just reading one story after another story after another story, and um, and, and you know, one reads the wonderful uh, essay that uh, Delilah Beasley, um, you know, great newswoman, um, wrote. And the centennial of that particular um, document, Slavery in California, which people can can read, it's free, it's online. Um, sort of documents, you know, some of these stories that we don't know about. So, yeah, I want you to talk a little bit about um, more about what happened 170 years ago with this this state that we are um, living in, and um, you know, one of the largest. I think we're. I don't know which. Um, you know, sort of what we are with it, what you know, sort of like with regards to how we are within ourselves. You know, um, a country. <laughs> you know that we have so much money. We mm. have, you know, we have we have right. the resources. And so far as the food stuff, that if we seceded from the union, we'd be fine. But other other states wouldn't be fine because they really rely on California's, um, you know, uh, gross nas- uh, national products you know, food and other types of resources that um, <laughs> we wouldn't be able to succeed peacefully. Um, I think um, the government would come after us. The the federal government would come after <laughs> us. <laughs> well, that that's perfect because that that is actually the reason why California became a state is because the federal government came after us. Um, mm. This uh, experiment uh, of of California, the California Republic, was hatched in New York, in Washington, you know, with this whole concept of manifest destiny, where from sea to shining sea, this was going to be a white man's, you know, playground. And anybody else in his playground was going to have to capitulate one way or the other. And so uh, when California secret plans to annex California, since Mexico was not interested in selling, many attempts for that to purchase it uh, didn't happen. So there was a concocted scheme to create the U.S.-Mexican War. And at the same time, there was agents sent out here uh, to, you know, survey the land from sea to shining sea, figure out, you know, where the rivers were, where the potential uh, resources, natural, human resources. I mean, all this is well-documented, Fremont. And, again, the uh, New York, the money in New York, uh, the base of operation, Louisiana, the ports, um, all this was uh, connected. And the, ironically, where the real money was was in Hawaii, and uh, the Hawaiian kingdom is finally getting a little play to, you know, acknowledge their role in the, you know, establishment of California because there were 10 Hawaiians with uh, Johan Sutter, a Spanish gangster, or not Spanish, Swiss gangster who founded Sacramento. But there were 10 Hawaiians with him. Uh, They call them Kanakas. And I was like, Lord have mercy, that sounds too much like black. And so when you dig down deep and you find out they are uh, very dark-skinned people, and, you know, the Spanish call them negros, 
Um, so, yeah, 1840, we'll start the clock there in the idea that California is going to be uh, a part of the United States. I mean, there wasn't nothing to discuss. That was a plan laid out. And the war was the excuse. The bear flag that we look at today uh, was actually um, created by a, a man of Pan-African ancestry. And so there was eight brothers uh, there at the Bear Flag Revolt. Uh, ironically, it was starting uh, right here in Sacramento County with some horse thieves, so there wouldn't be any reinforcement to the Spanish um, military that was going to go to Sonoma where, you know, the generals were. General Viejo, uh, you know, Sutter was a, was, a, was a general, but he would go either way, so they just bypassed him. They went for the general Viejo, and they captured him. wasn't any, you know, um, uh, military action because, hey, the man got out. The horses are the reinforcements. Ain't no sense in us fighting. They got 30 men. We got 10. Uh, you know, we'll, you know, have a drink and figure this out. So that's that's the Bear Flag Revolt, 1846. And then the military uh, comes via the Navy, via the ships, and comes to Monterey and San Francisco and takes over. So military rule actually began um, – Officially, 1846, the flag is hoisted up, and this is um, United States for all intents and purposes. Uh, the uh, uh, Declaration of Independence is read in San Francisco Harbor on the veranda of the African Founding Fathers. California was blighted state government at the port of San Francisco. And then, so the, 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 and this is all before the gold rush. Then, so now the political maneuverings, it begins Back in D.C., um, the son-in-law of the most powerful senator um, is, is sent on the assignment to document all of California. Uh, Fremont, uh, the town Fremont named after him. Uh, he's out here, and he has a rogue of gangsters with him. Ironically, his bodyguard is a black man, Jacob Dobson, a free black man, whose assignment is to make sure uh, my boy get home and your people be well taken care of, uh, you know, by the by the leading men in Washington D.C. So California becomes a state um, September uh, 1850, and it becomes a state um, upsetting the delicate balance, as they call it, between free states and uh, states with enslaved Africans in it. Uh, fifteen free free fifteen states uh, with folks that look like me that are in chains and bondage, uh, you know, since <laughs> we don't know. The, 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 the first documentation that I've been able to acquire is uh, 1442 when the Pope says go down to Africa and, you know, don't let them people become Muslim and snatch them into slavery. Um, and so they begin to bring ships out here. So here we are in 1850 suggesting that there's no slavery in California, and there is. Uh, there's genocide of the Native American, and this is now the United States, based upon that background. And unfortunately, we don't talk about it, and nobody knows it, and people will argue all day long, I don't know what I'm talking about, but when you pull out the source document, and you see all this is true, uh, because we rest on the primary source documents in hand, as we have these adult conversations.
Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, can you can you maybe tell us some of these stories of some of these um, uh, free men, free men of color, as they were called, free women of color that um, that were rounded up and sent off. You know, to Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana, like from California, um, and and then and then it was like this one story that I was reading last night um, in this really wonderful document. Um, it's called uh, NextCity.org um, Daily Entry Campaign Unveils Hidden History of Slavery in California. It's amazing. That is a great website. Um, and and there was a uh, one man he. He took care of, you know, his owner, and, you know, he took him back down south. And um, when the, uh, I think when the guy died, they um, they took they took all of his, his resources, his money, and, and sold him again. After he had, per- you know, had, had paid for his, his, um, his freedom. And that happened more than once, you know, that people were robbed. And... Um, yeah, I wonder if you could talk about some of these men because there was like a there was there were like three men in particular. I think they were brothers, and they ended up escaping, going into Panama or something. But the trail kind of grows cold there, so there was no uh, documentation. But we think they got away um, as they were being shipped away, you know, um, and back into shipped. And I guess I don't know if they had been enslaved before, but they were being re-enslaved. Yeah, there, there's. I mean, there is a plethora of stories, and the the mm-hmm. the basis of the real challenge that we have is that the gold rush hit in 1848, January 1848, and people of African descent were there in the very beginning. I mean, there were people uh, in the uh, mill race as such. Sutter's Mill, uh, when gold was discovered in January 1848. And then the African founding father, who had, you know, 35,000 acres along the Gold Rush uh, River, the Gold River, as it's called today, uh, in the El Dorado, um, and all these black towns, you know, Negro Hill, Negro Bluff, Negro Bar, uh, you know, these are towns, you know, thousands of black folks mining gold on the American River. Uh, and all throughout the gold mining district. And these black folks uh, are educated. And, you know, the first that was able to get here uh, in, you know, large numbers were the black men that were on whaling ships from, you know, Boston and uh, Rhode Island and, you know, Massachusetts. And these were educated men that could read and write and speak languages and chart the stars and get home and, you know, and have plenty of money. And so all of these stories, they came here, and in, when the legislature met, when the California State Constitution, the most egregious the thing they did is said, hey, look, these black people are not going to be citizens. They're not going to be human beings. We're going to disenfranchise them. Well, we can't have these black people out here running stuff. The governor was a black man, P.O. Pico. The head of the uh, Coast Guard was a black man, Peter Rainey. The uh, man who had the best uh, route to get to California overland, uh, James Beckworth, they lost everything. 
and, and most of them uh, that we don't know lost their lives, but we can go back in the records, in the Spanish records, in the Russian records, in the French records, and find out that these black men had stature because that's why they're in the records. They were in the financial transactions. And then you back into that and say, well, wait a minute. Who else was around them? And then you find good white folks and good Russians. You find, you know, because they had good black friends with them and it will make your money. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of folks that <clears throat> lost a lot, but the, the question is how did they acquire all of that property and all that land? And the black women, oh, my God, we don't even want to talk about women because white women weren't citizens, you know, until the California Constitution because there wasn't any white women out here. The women were Native American and Hawaiian and black. There were no white women out here. So, you know, there were all women of color in California before the gold rush. <laughs> there were no white women out here. So, um, you know, all of those mixtures, they certainly were babies, and, you know, you get all these mixtures of indigenous cultures with the explorers, all these Navy men from different ethnicities coming to California, gold rush, they, these men are out here. So, yeah, the the women that stand out in my mind are like Biddy Mason who walked out here and slaved behind the Um, You know, Sylvia Starks, a light-skinned sister that had to wear a bee on her chest to make sure folks know that she was black. You know, she's on the money in Canada because she got got up out of here. Um, you know, Mammy Pleasant, who came out here from New Orleans, who ran San Francisco, you know, politically, financially, all kind of ways, you know, talk about. And all of the women that were here with the black men who were men of God, you know, the different churches that were here. So there's, there's plenty of stories to talk about. And uh, Delilah, she, uh, the author, uh, the, the you know, the griot uh, it tells it the best. But, again, we have a lot of men today saying, hey, look, the sister didn't do it this way. The sister didn't do it that way. I said, boo, look at what she did do. And, you know, go down one of them paths because she – there is nobody that surpasses her work. I mean, you know, in that time frame. You have people today uh, that, you know, want there and didn't have primary source documents and didn't talk to the actual people that were still living so yeah, there's the California Missions Day. Uh, Governor Duke Major took it away from being celebrated in the schools. Uh, he made it a personal thing, and so you know that means ain't nobody gonna do it. But it used to be uh, all six million children in the schools. You know, took some time and talked about California Missions Day. But when it became a conversation of, of black empowerment, oh, we got to get that out of the equation by all means. And here we are in 2020 talking about reparations, and we don't even know or care or even consider any of the history of Pan-African people in California. It, 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 it's criminal, but it, it makes sense if you don't know that you don't know, you're going to fight somebody who doesn't. And the documents. We, we, we're not going to introduce the documents into the equation because, my God, uh, I don't know anything about it. So in, 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 instead of being an adult and saying, hey, look, let's learn together and teach the children while I learn, uh, we want to, you know, discount and make sure that, you know, that crazy man, Kubaka, you know, can't even uh, participate. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> hmm. 
Yeah. So since you mentioned it a couple of times, um, the reparations um, bill that's I don't think it's passed both houses in the state of California. Could you maybe bring people up to speed a little bit on that, and um, and then if you maybe close out with what should people like give us something to do? <laughs> okay. On, Perfect. On California yeah, so Missions bill, Day. Um, yeah, uh, California Missions Day is is, is today. I mean, we should celebrate it. And the the main the, the greatest takeaway is. Uh, just look at the state flag and see the bare flag. It, it says California Republic. And why is why did California become a republic and how? And so that, I mean, just there's a big old bear on it. I mean, where we don't have any grizzly bears anymore. It's extinct. No different than our story of California Pan-Africans is, is, has been extinct, but we can revive it. So the Assembly Bill uh, AB 3121, that was authored by uh, Dr. Weber, uh, who's the chair of the Black Legislative Caucus, and many other co-authors, um, I believe it's like 12 of them. Uh, the bill passed both houses and is called what uh, engrossed. That means it's passed both houses, the uh, Assembly and the Senate, and it's currently awaiting the uh, determination uh, by Governor Newsom as well as has this bill reached the threshold of becoming a law? And so that's what he's contemplating right now. And there's been many amendments, you know, some last-minute amendments may make the bill something, you know, that the governor should sign. Uh, I haven't looked at it lately because I've been busy doing other things. The original language of the bill was very weak, very uh, um, convoluted and confusing, uh, I was there the very day that the bill number um, was uh, assigned and su- making some suggestions of things to look at, places to look with the staff members of the legislature, and they weren't interested. They, you know, they had their idea of what was going to happen, and they're looking everywhere but right underneath their feet. And they won't talk about California. They're looking at, you know, Virginia and Florida and a national conversation and not really focusing on what my thought was is that, hey, look, this is California. Why not focus on California while you have a national conversation? So hopefully the governor will sign the bill, and there is going to be, uh, I believe, nine members of a commission to study, you know, what we're talking about in this call and then make some recommendations on whether the state of California can provide some sort of um, platform to mitigate the loss and the egregious disparaging acts specific to people of African descent here in California. Uh, That, you know, the language is not there, but if they do a, a basic, you know, high school study of what what we've just been talking about for the last hour, uh, you can, you know, clearly see that there was uh, intent, loss, and well as, you know, some specific things to do to, you know, uh, mitigate the ongoing impacts that the state legislature made in 1849, 1850. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was wondering how how does a person become a part of that commission uh, to to make the recommendations about how 
people of African descent in this state uh, can be duly compensated for the loss, loss well, of uh, lives, yeah, loss yeah. of um, uh, of um, of property and and other types of um, incomes. You know, over over the history of this of this state, connected, of course, to the history of this nation. Well, Wanda, I think you would be a perfect representative, and the reason being. Uh, if, in fact, uh, the 400-year commission, the 1619, the 2019 commission that you were awarded uh, representing California, I think there was like three people um, right. that I'm aware of, and you were one of them because of your longstanding work and, you know, the work that you do every day, um, I would, specific to you, I would call Senator Skinner, who is one of our champions, um, and just say, hey, look, this is something I'm very interested in, and if you're not or don't have time to, this is somebody that I'm going to partner with, and we need to, like, weigh in on this with some significant, um, you know, authentic voices, you know, like Baba Jahara, who's been doing this work for, let's just say, before the turn of the century, yeah. well over 30 years, <laughs> and, and many mm-hmm. others. Uh, and then there's some people that just, you know, arrived yesterday, they got a Ph.D., uh, from one of these schools, and all they're doing is regurgitating the fecal matter and white supremacy, and they have no idea of any of the legacy that we should be standing on. And they're speaking the loudest and have the voice uh, 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 of UCLA and uh, USC behind them, and it's not us. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like Black Lives Matter, but ain't nobody black. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. So, yeah, I would do that. The bill, again, uh, is AB 3121, and uh, it's passed both houses, and it's waiting the governor's signature. Should he sign it? Uh, like I said, I haven't seen all the last-minute amendments, you know, because mm-hmm. with the COVID virus, you know, that, I mean, you know, one day I snuck in there, and I was one of four people uh, of the public while they're debating, let's say, 200, 300 bills. And, uh, you know, they just didn't have... I mean, you know, to be fair, it was it was difficult to have a public process when members of the legislature were catching the virus while they on the floor debating bills. Mm-hmm. You know, That's so right. I don't, you know, mm-hmm. it's 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 certainly something like reparations. I was more uh, on the side of, you know, I was saying, hey, look, Governor veto it when they first started acting silly and wouldn't have a process and didn't want to include people. Um, you know, we waited all this time. One more year ain't gonna be a problem, but they pushed it forward and they did make amendments. Uh, they started to make amendments, and um, you know, we made a little noise. But absent being in their face, it's you know, it's it's a different conversation. But yeah, I would I would uh, uh, encourage you and others because it should be statewide because the LA experience is very different than the Bay Area experience. And, my God, nobody wants to talk about the slavery that happened in the foothills, but there's some people up there um, in Grass Valley, black folks, that, you know, have been here long before California was part of the United States uh, that know their history uh, and know Mm -hmm. what they lost. Uh, Perfect example is uh, the Burgess brothers, uh, uh, Nancy Gooch, who uh, walked out here enslaved, 
bought the whole town where gold was found and had, you know, thousands of acres uh, in the foothills where gold was first found. And, you know, it, I mean, it's just the, the, the stories and legacy of blacks, and I call it the agricultural working la- landscape. They just call it the working landscape. You take the ag out, people don't get it. But the, the, the whole state's on fire. Well, the brother who yeah, created a way to make sure the forest uh, doesn't catch on fire and get out of control like this, people don't want to acknowledge he even wrote the book, became the first park ranger in California, protected the mm-hmm. oldest living thing on the planet. And, mm-hmm. you know, these people let it burn yeah. up just to say a black yeah, man Brig- wasn't up there. Yeah, Brigadier General um, Alan um, Young. Yeah. Yeah. And his wife, her family were enslaved up in gold, gold, in Grass Valley. But I'm like, well, what mm. kind of sister could, you know, corral that brother? I'm like, ooh, I need to do some digging on her. I mean, <laughs> yeah, his brother running lives around in Oakland. Mm. She, yes, uh, the AME church in Oakland, first AME. And so, but her family were, were enslaved in Grass Valley. They came from, mm. um, <clears throat> you know, uh, Florida and, and Georgia. And, you know, the trail gets cold, but you know we we ain't gonna stop. We just somebody gonna call one day and say this is the missing piece. But the the, the, <laughs> the issue is if we had all that back in the 1840s and 50s, and then when the state of California on this day, 170 years ago, became a part of the United States, and we lost 90 <laughs> percent of it. And we quantified how much we lost at a convention. Everybody from all over the state came to Sacramento and quantified how much we lost in a Negro convention. Not one, not two, not three, four conventions. And it's all written down. And it's all written mm-hmm. down by Frederick Douglass's roommate, Reverend Jeremiah Sanderson. I can go all day like this because I do have the best teachers. And now that I get old and they, some of them dead and gone, I'm like, Lord, what did he tell me? And, you know, I meditate, <laughs> and I go to the beach, and I'll be quiet, and I can hear him speaking to me. And I start writing the stuff down. <laughs> mm-hmm. People say, I'm crazy. Yeah. Well, I am, but I ain't stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're not stupid by a long shot. Yeah, it's always, always so wonderful, you know, to catch up with you and just be reminded of our legacy as black people here in this state. Um, yes. You know, connected to this nation, but this state is its own nation. You know, literally, California. I yeah. don't know which, um, you you know which um, how you know size we are, but oh, we, you know we, we ranking the up there. We're the fifth largest country on the planet. If we separated okay. from the United the States, California is the fifth wow. largest country on the planet. You know, okay. with so much yeah. resources that haven't been tapped, it, it's this place named after this African woman is one of the most richest places on the planet. And mm-hmm. it's no different than we, we've been playing with uh, the agricultural product, Kef, and talking about how Queen Calafia can meet Queen Sheba and, you know, in, in, in an agricultural sense, in a spiritual sense. <laughs> it's no different mm-hmm. than the mountains of Ethiopia, the richest places on the planet because all of the resources mm-hmm. and the water mm-hmm. cutting through the soil and feeding and clothing you know, millions of people, if properly utilized. But if if we're discounted, we're not human beings. Well, it's hard mm-hmm. to 
you know, utilize that well. Right, right. Yeah, yes, definitely um reparations is uh uh is a is a move for recognizing African diaspora people's human rights as well as civil yes. rights. Um but yes. the first we like you say, you know, we have to be recognized as human beings and obviously, you know, in twenty twenty you know, 400-plus years of African-American history, we still are not looked upon as human beings. Because otherwise, you know, uh, the state cannot justify its actions and use of force well, against yes. other citizens. And and mm-hmm. what is so powerful is on Memorial Day, you know, mm-hmm. our brother was, was executed publicly. Yeah. For the world to see yeah. on Memorial Day, the day that we yeah, are the also, black troops that freed us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it wasn't yeah, just Memorial so, Day. It was also African um, uh, Liberation Day. That that whole weekend, exactly. No, so, no, that day. It, that day was African okay, Liberation day. day. You know, that, yeah, yeah, so Memorial Day you're, and you're African right. Liberation Day, same and day so, they're killing this man. Mm-hmm. So Publicly. A so, public execution, so going back to so, the lynchings that our sister Ida B. Well was documenting and, and working against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the, yeah. the spirit that's in, you know, the African liberation that goes through the the, the men who fought on the battlefield so we wouldn't be slaves or enslaved, and then mm-hmm. we bring it to today, and the whole world is, I mean, mostly white folks is running around talking about Black Lives Matter. And I'm talking about all <laughs> over the world. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, wait a minute. <laughs> Something special <laughs> going on here. So so this time for us to open up and, you know, okay, well, how do we matter? How do we begin to matter? You know, when did we stop mattering? You know, was mm-hmm. it when the Pope said put us in chains? Was it when, you know, the man said all men create equal, but we wasn't considered men, he was animals? Chattel? I mean, when did it, was it yesterday when, you know, uh, y'all came out, the state legislature had a speech on the steps, said Black Lives Matter. So I was like, huh, so, okay, how do we, you know, y'all do laws, how do you, the law that you did that said that we don't matter, and this is how much we're going to take from you, how do you write laws and say, okay, we're going to mitigate the fact that we did that to you for 170 years, and this is how we're going to fix it. You know, so there's, mm-hmm. there's, for example, the new president of the largest educational institution on the planet is a black man who graduated from high school in Sacramento, who is a PhD physician, and now he is at the helm of the United of the of the UC system. Uh, you know, he has. <laughs> all sorts of ways that he could begin to help Black Lives Matter. Uh, the chancellor uh, and president yes. of schools all up and down California. So we, we have right. things in place, but it's, it's, it's incumbent upon us that, you know, people like you and me and others to say, hey, look, this is what we need to be whole in our community. You know, it can't be from, you know, the leadership. It has to be, you know, uh, as our teachers say, all power to the people. Well, how does it impact the people on the ground that they don't know that they don't know because it's not in the school district, 
not in the school books. And now you got social distancing and all them books and all that infrastructure, all that money being wasted because it's sitting empty. And our kids is was having problems before COVID. Now, shoot, woo, it's gonna get worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm going to actually um, play an interview with you and uh, and Baba Akinsanya Kabon from last year um, to to sort of round out the rest of the show. So that was okay. a really good conversation that we had. Um, we always have great conversations. So, oh yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So how is um how is um Baba um Akinsanya Kabon doing? <laughs> He's doing, you know what's funny? He calls me because he was upset. So the engine blew out on his truck, and he was, you know, talking about a quote that, you know, didn't make no sense. And I said, look, man, let's go let's go get you an engine. So we went to a few places, you know, because the wrecking yards here in Sacramento, it's, it's cold virus. Ain't nobody out looking for no engine. I said, man, we'll find you an engine. So we found him an engine, and, you know, I, the, the guy at the wrecking yard turned it off running. And I said, Baba, look, you hear that engine? That's a good engine. He said, it's got a lot of miles on it. I said, Baba, listen to that engine. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that was like a week ago. Yeah, mm. I saw him. He was here in Sacramento. <laughs> and so uh, his wife is on his way up here. Maybe he'll get his engine in his truck so he can move his artwork. But he has an exhibit at the Crocker Art Museum. And because of COVID, it's shut down. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's an elder, and, you know, I told him his voice is clear, his, uh, his, his congestion in his chest, uh, he sounded stronger than he has in the last five years, in my opinion. But, you know, mm-hmm. that don't mean nothing <laughs> these days. But he's doing all right. He's in good shape. Yeah. He's driving. Uh, his spirit is strong, as always. And, uh, like mm-hmm. I said, that's how I gauge it, because... You know, he he has some, I mean, you know, we all going to have health challenges, but, you know, three Purple Hawks and all kind of warrior wounds for being uh, lieutenant of culture for the Black Panther Party for self-defense and traveling all over the earth, all through the jungles of Africa. I mean, you know, he got challenges, but he's, his, he's still doing art. He's probably the most prolific artist, or certainly the most prolific artist I know. I asked him mm-hmm. through a Buffalo Soldier series, and he's got 40 pictures. You know, right, less, than yeah. like, uh, less than like six months. I'm, I'm talking about for real pictures. I'm not talking about no play stuff. Uh, fine mm-hmm. art, you know, Buffalo Soldiers. Nice, nice. Yeah, because we, we talk about um, Colonel Charles Young and the California yeah. Buffalo Soldier Project on that show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then again, yeah, and, we, and we already mentioned... Um, Mm-hmm. Well, I want to want to finish. Yeah, we uh, we, uh, we mentioned Colonel uh, and now Brigadier General Charles Young as the first. Yeah. Um, um, let's see, first. Um, Chancey, what was well, he was his the title? Third go, um, he was the third that went through West Point. Third black man to go through West Point. And today, <clears throat> there's a black man that runs the superintendent of West Point, and the sister is like 30 deep coming out of there, and the Buffalo Soldier Field. But uh, Reverend Dr. Ambrose Carroll is setting up a Buffalo Soldier uh, camp uh, Mm -hmm. right between Yosemite and uh, Sequoia National Park, and we'll probably be there on September 26th. 
Uh, we're working out the details on that. But it's free admission into the state parks uh, that day, the national parks as well. And we're going to bring people up there because there's like 150 acres sitting there waiting for us to develop. So we're going to develop it in the name of Buffalo Soldiers and Youth Buffalo Soldiers. I think we're going to break mm-hmm. ground on that on the 26th. I need to call him today. Right. Yeah, I, I wanted to mention that um, that uh, Brigadier General um, uh, Charles Young was the first superintendent of of parks um, in California, I think, in the nation. And um, in the nation, yeah. And at, yeah, and at the uh, the Giant Sequoia. So you said that the Giant Sequoia is it okay? I mean. With regards to the the fires yeah, burning, no, yeah, well, there's, there's oh. fires on the way there, but we were just there um, um, a month ago. Um, mm-hmm. The highway going into Sequoia is the Colonel Charles Young Memorial Highway, and the mm-hmm. oldest living organism on the planet is uh, was protected by Colonel Charles Young and the Buffalo Soldiers, and the roads in the Sequoia was all created by Buffalo Soldiers. And, you know, the superintendents there are now, we want it not just one day on Buffalo Soldier Day. We want to infuse the seamless legacy of the Buffalo Soldiers every day. So, you know, the people that come to Yosemite and Sequoia get to acknowledge the contributions of the people of African descent that made this place possible. And mm-hmm. I maintain the brother was doing it to impress his wife, uh, Ida Mills, uh, you know, the largest tree on the planet, trail to the highest mountain, baby, I want you to be my woman. And, you know, I mean, you know, any kind of woman make any sense. It's like, look at this tree, this mountain, the largest mountain. And my baby did this for me? She, she had two babies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, it, and, it's, and it's, it's a lasting love, right, because it's still standing. <laughs> and they just okay. They just moved her body into Arlington, so they back together. Mm. Ida Mills was, where was somewhere where, in California. Where was her body? Oh, it was somewhere here in California. No, no, it wasn't. It was in uh, Ohio. Um, mm-hmm. And they moved her body to oh, at Wilberforce, uh, Arlington. Yeah, oh. it was in Wilberforce, and they moved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Renata Young, who is the matriarch of the family, she um, mm-hmm. and her daughter. Uh, help move it to uh, Arlington Cemetery. So they back together, and uh, That's Renata, she's yeah, she's she <laughs> she is the assistant controller at Columbia University in New York City. Mm-hmm. She ain't nothing to play mm-hmm. with, and so mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, oh, you we, have we to have introduce me to her. We have to get her to come on uh, to talk oh, yeah, about. She, she would love to. She would love mm-hmm. to. So what what's their relationship? The, the, is that her her grandfather, great grandfather? Uh, it's like a it's I don't know the exact because it's like blended family. Uh, mm-hmm. She's young, and um, you know that's her last name, and so mm-hmm. it's all it's family, and like right. I said, she's the matriarch, and she ain't nobody <laughs> ain't nobody go with good sense gonna mess with Renata, you know. Right. Because, uh, cool. She's a lawyer. <laughs> She, she ain't nothing to play with. It, it's clear that the bloodstream is tight. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. Wow. Well, you know, it's always really wonderful, um, you know, speaking to you about, about our history. And um, I was wondering in closing if you wanted to, um, again, um, you know, give us a charge or, or maybe just reflect on the importance of history and um, 
yeah, it seemed like, you know, the way that um, you learned about our history was, you know, just sort of like being in those spaces and, you know, where where it happened and, and you know, yes. and sitting under, sitting at the feet of those people who, who lived it or knew the people who lived it. And it just right. seems, you know, really, yeah. really wonderful. Um, and uh, and I know, you know, we're going to have you on again to talk about Juneteenth and there's some things coming up around that. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to um, give you an opportunity to sort of close out and <clears throat> With in whatever way you like. Well, yeah, it's it's really for me. It is a legacy that we all have to deal with our personal story and then our collective story. And as we get ready for Maafa Awareness Month, the entire month of October, because most of us have to remain sheltered in place and mindful of, you know, the places that we go and the, you know, group settings that we find ourselves into or shouldn't find ourselves into, uh, take this time specifically on the way to uh, from California Mission Day throughout uh, Maafa Awareness Month is to look and see what happened to your personal family in this time frame. And then, like, what are we going to do? And so what we're going to do, uh, and I'm saying we nationwide, is we're going to push the final uh, envelope to get a national Juneteenth holiday. And, you know, no different than we celebrate uh, first fruits of the harvest and agricultural bounty around Kwanzaa, we're going to celebrate Juneteenth because that's why we were here. We were agricultural labor and our freedom, uh, a taste of freedom. You know, how do we grow food? How do we, you know, protect the forest? How do we have good fish? How do we have flowers? How do we have clothes on our body made from good fabric? All of that is agriculture. So the the charge is to look at our personal situation, you know, our own families, look at some of the pathologies that we've had to deal with, some of the hurt that we've had to endure, um, and then how do we begin to heal, and so the Maafa month is is the perfect time to do that. Right. Yeah. Certainly. Certainly. Well, thank you so much. <clears throat> and as I mentioned, you know, we're gonna we're gonna play another conversation with you from the archives. And uh, yes. yeah, looking forward to our next conversation. It's always a yes, always a wonderful pleasure to speak to you, um, Brother Kabaka. Yes, and what does Kabaka yes, mean? You know, roughly, uh, uh, Dr. Theophilo Binga, he was talking about Kui land and where the mm-hmm. ancient ancestors rest. So the, the rough translation is, remember my ancient ancestors and the blood flowing through me, my soul will lift forever. Oh, what a nice name. So is it Kikongo, the, the, the name? Oh, no, it's, uh, it's Nile Valley uh, okay. uh, infused. So Kui mm-hmm. is like, the resting place of the ancient committants. The Ba mm-hmm. and Ka is, you know, kind ah, of the ba. Oh, I know the Ba and the Ka. Yeah, that's... Yes. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, um, you know, that's sort of like the soul on his journey home. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and when you, yeah. And when you're at home with the esteemed elders, you live forever. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, mm-hmm. kind of what I aspire to do with my life, and you know, when I get myself out the way, uh, it, you know, it's it's it, anybody can see it. 
if I'm in the way, you know, I'm in the way. You can see that too. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, do you want to give your contact information for people who want to, you know, continue the conversation and stay in touch? Uh, yeah, the best way is uh, blackagriculture at yahoo.com or uh, Juneteenth Food and Wine Festival. Oh, no, Juneteenth Food and Wine. Doesn't have a festival. Juneteenth Food and Wine at Gmail or Black Agriculture at Yahoo. That's the best way. All righty. Cool, cool. And All righty. We take good sometimes care. Sometimes I get busy. Yes, ma'am. Right. Talk to you soon, Wanda. <laughs> All, right. All right. Peace and blessings. <laughs> Para su Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity, Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims, and so we should pause, take a breath, and exercise our options because they are more than what might immediately meet the eye. And we so we are so excited today to have on the air once again um our our dear brother um Michael Kubaka Harris. Good morning. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. And um and he introduced us to the wonderful artist and also veteran. Um didn't mention that um Brother Kubaka is also a veteran. And we are continuing our honoring of the veterans with this show. We have on the air. Um, uh, do you do you call yourself Baba or Mister or how should I start? Like, what's your honorific? Baba Akinsanya. Okay, Baba Akinsanya Kaban, um, who actually has an exhibit opening at the Crocker Museum in Sacramento um, in February 2020, and hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit about that as well. But this particular um, Veterans Day, not just here in California, but also in Kentucky and maybe even elsewhere, um, Colonel Charles Young um, and the legacy of the Buffalo Soldiers um, was lifted up and honored. And so um, so maybe, um, uh, Kubaka, maybe you could um, just start it off. Um, I... Um, I I found a bio for you um, under African Food Basket, and I don't know if you want me to read that one. 
um, because I know, you know, you're really active around, you know, the black farmers because that's how I met you. Um, so how what do you how do you want me to introduce you? Uh, yeah, that's fine. It, you, you can make it short. I'm, uh, oh, it's not short. It's long. Um, well, I just wanted to know yeah, if you yeah. liked that one. <laughs> that it's fine. Yeah, but you know, we, we that want to work? Yeah, yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, so um, Kubaka or Michael Harris is a native of Sacramento, California. He serves as the chair of the California Black Agriculture Working Group a statewide multidisciplinary collaborative providing tangible action plans to increase the number and participation by urban and rural agriculture producers of African ancestry in the number one agriculture industries in the world. For over 15 years, um, and this it's more than that now because this bio is, was posted on in 2017, <laughs> so like 17 years now, um, Mr. Harris, served as a development director, California Black Farmers and Agriculturalists Association, and for five years as a member of the USDA community-based organization partners team. In 2004 through 2008, he served as the urban agriculture representative on the Food and Farm Policy Diversity Initiative, um, highlighting successful outcomes during negotiations leading up to the creation of the 2008 Food and Energy Act. Um, uh, Pickford, two class action claimants, those who suffered under past racial discrimination by the USDA employees and policies, received nearly a billion dollars in um, in of financial payments and priority assistance meant to partially offset major losses by black farmers in America. He is currently the assistant project manager for Carson Creek Ranch Food and Agriculture Center. The Africa USA International Chamber of Commerce and Industry, California Black Chamber of Commerce, and additional collaborative partnerships. Um, I think, like the um, uh, the Juneteenth, uh, the National Juneteenth um, Committee, I believe is that what it's called? Yeah. Michael. Okay. Yeah. And um, let's see. And it says. Um, <laughs> So the plans are to develop the Carson Creek Ranch Food and Agricultural Center into a world-class facility that expands job creation, technical education, career advancement, and economic development throughout California and the Pan-African diaspora. So is the center, is it open? Has, has it, no, it's, it's not open currently. We have some technical issues, but we're still actively pursuing that and partner mm -hmm. with UC Davis, uh, Sac State. <clears throat> we just had the Pan-African Global Trade Investment Conference. And uh, I actually, I just met with the uh, Ag Secretary yesterday. Uh, we're, mm -hmm. we're in good shape for it to open in 2020. Okay, super, awesome, awesome, yeah. And um, and why don't I why don't I just read um, uh, uh, Baba um, Akinsanya's um, bio since I have it up, and then we could start talking. How's that? How does that go? Okay. How's that okay? Okay. All right. Yep. So I mentioned that. Um, that he has an exhibit um, opening in February. The exact dates are February 2nd through July 5th, 2020. So put that in your calendar. Um, so born, um, uh, Baba Akinsanya Cabon, born as Mark Teamer in Sacramento, California, Akinsanya Cabon is a, is a former Marine, Black Panther, and art professor 
Um, stricken with polio as a child, he turned to drawing for comfort and ultimately his therapy. He recalls in his adolescence frequent visits to the Crocker Art Museum, which fascinated him and showed him the human potential in creating art. He, he served a tour of duty in Vietnam with the United States Marine Corps from 1966 to 1968. Shortly thereafter, he created the Black Panther Coloring Book to bring attention to racial inequality and social injustice. Despite being only semi-literate in his youth, Cabone went on to earn his Master's of Fine Arts from California State University, Fresno. In more recent years, he was featured in War Torn, 1861-2010, an HBO documentary screened at the Pentagon on post-traumatic stress disorder for in veterans. Today, Gabon's work is as rich and varied as his personal history, expressed through drawings, paintings, bronze sculptures, and ceramics. Um, the exhibition, I'm reading from the, uh, the bio. I'm not going to read uh, about that. Um, but anyway, <laughs> the first part, all of this is from the Crocker Art Museum, uh, and you can I have a link to that uh, on the show uh, description. So welcome again to both of you. Um, and uh yeah, so um so Kabaka, why don't you why don't you start and, and then we will segue into um uh, more more commentary about the Buffalo Soldiers specifically um by um Baba Akinsanya. Well okay, uh, um Go ahead, Michael, sorry. Okay, yeah, the uh, Veterans Day weekend uh this year at the Sequoia National Park, uh, brought together people from all over the United States to honor and create the Colonel Charles Young Memorial Highway, which is uh, Three Rivers, California, which is near Visalia, off of Highway 99. And Sequoia National Park uh, is a very beautiful place, and you, you can't do it. Uh, justice unless you see it. it. It has the largest living organisms on earth. These trees, uh, the sequoia redwood grove, um, I mean, they're the biggest living organisms on planet earth. You, you can't describe how big these trees are. And the giant grove, as it's called, was first protected uh, by Colonel Charles Young, built fences around these big trees uh, because they were built roads uh, very steep, uh, very dangerous roads to drive on uh, that are still in use today. But people can now access these largest trees in the world. And now the entrance into the park is called the Colonel Charles Young Memorial Highway as of uh, two days ago. So it's very, very profound ceremony with the uh, park director for the entire United States. He was there uh Sister Kennard, who Dr. Joy Kennard, who runs the uh, Colonel Charles Young uh, State Park in Ohio, she flew out the Young family, uh, Renetta and uh, her daughter, uh, both attorneys in New York City, very prominent, very fine sisters, I might add, um, from New York. And, and, you know, just a host of dignitaries. Uh, Shelton Johnson, who represents the Buffalo Soldiers at Yosemite, he was there. 
and, and there was a number of other dignitaries, assemblymen who authored the legislation, uh, assemblyman Devin Mathis, uh, and, and many others. And, and so it, it was very touching uh, for uh, for me to receive uh, an award on behalf of the the. I'd say maybe 20 different Buffalo Soldier organizations that we've been working with over the last uh, five years. Uh, it's just it's just a blessing and honor to know that the legacy of you know this Pan African warrior is still providing examples for the world. So so the brother was born enslaved in Kentucky um, in 1864. His father, uh, you know. This time ran away to freedom and was not captured, but was um, embraced by Union soldiers, and he fought as a U.S. colored troop. Charles Young uh, followed. He was an excellent student, um, and he was able to take the exam to get into West Point. And, you know, he was the third black man to graduate through uh, West Point Academy, the top military college on planet Earth. And uh, his expertise was you know punctuated by uh his engineering skills he was having challenges passing his engineering course you know due to systemic institutional racism but he was rewarded for his uh perseverance by being taught engineering by the man who built the Panama Canal so he was a, a, a excellent engineer uh to the point where everywhere he went uh he was able to excel in his uh, endeavors, building roads, roads, bridges, uh, all throughout the world. In, in, in Mexico, he served in Cuba. He served in uh, the Philippines. He was the first military attaché in Liberia. And on a special assignment, he was killed in Nigeria. And there's, there's, there's a well. Let's just say we haven't been able to get the. Uh, declassified story on exactly how he died in 1922 in Nigeria, but what is uh, noteworthy is that's in 1922, that's when the Nigerian youth movement was established, and that led to where, you know, Britain had to yield, and uh, Nigeria today is an independent nation. So, I mean, it's my personal belief that uh, he is one of the founding fathers of the independence of Nigeria because of his uh, stature and his, I mean, he's a black man as an officer in Nigeria, and young Nigerians saw that. And, you know, because of his perseverance uh, through the American system, uh, some of the Nigerians saw that and took that. So we, we have uh, documentation of who the people he were able to influence in Nigeria. We're, we're going to go down that story a, a little bit uh, next year. The highway uh, dedication was Veterans Day, November 11th, and uh, I'm thankful that uh, Wanda is helping us share that story because the California aspect of the Buffalo Soldiers is a profound story. It's not widely known. There's 500 Buffalo Soldiers buried at the Presidio of San Francisco, uh, the Buffalo Soldiers helped build the Presidio. They helped build the Presidio in Monterey. Uh, they rode horses all the way to Yosemite. They helped build Yosemite and Sequoia National Parks. People from all over the world come to both those parks, and vast majority of them that 
that are global tourists have no clue that these black men, uh, Buffalo soldiers, uh, preserved and were the original, I should say the original, were some of the original uh, park rangers. The the military was assigned to protect those parks, and these black men did more documented, did more than most uh, under the leadership of Colonel Charles Young. And um, so on on Monday, Veterans Day, uh, November 11th, I was at the Presidio and, um, you know, overlooking the Golden Gate, shaded by cypress and washed by fog. I'm reading the brochure from the Visitor Center uh, are the headstones of 450 black soldiers of the 9th and 10th and 24th and 25th Infantry. And and I look for um, uh, Sergeant William Tompkins' um, uh, headstone, and he uh, was awarded the Medal of Honor for Bravery and Valor in the Spanish-American War. Uh, he and some other soldiers went and rescued, I think, 20 stranded um, soldiers. Nobody wanted to go get them because of the risk. And so they went and got them, and everyone returned um, safely. You know, there were a few, you know, there were some wounds because there was, you know, um, uh, they were being, you know, fired upon. But everybody survived. And um, and so anyway, it was, uh, yeah, it was really, really just, it was just so moving, you know, to be there with all of these ancestors. Um, and, um, and uh, yeah, so hopefully, you know, next time, next year, um, there will be a lot more people there, you know, honoring these men. And um, and I was gonna read a little bit of um, of something that's on this uh, this brochure, which you can get when you go to the visitor center at the Presidio. Um, uh, it says um, Charles Young, uh, 1868 to 1922, was the third, as you mentioned, African American to graduate from West Point. During his long and prestigious career, he commanded the 9th, 10th Cavalry Companies and served as a military attaché. He was the first. Uh, black officer to attain the rank of full colonel. In March 2013, President Barack Obama established the Charles Young Buffalo Soldiers National Monument to honor Colonel Young's leadership story and the experience of the Buffalo Soldiers during difficult and racially tense times. And um, so while we were in California, um, you know, you were at the Sequoia National Park and, um, and, and I was at the Presidio, in um, in Kentucky, at the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage and Black Veterans, um, they honored Colonel Charles Young on Veterans Day, and um, uh, and Mr. Uh, Charles Blatcher III, who is chairman of the National Coalition of Black Veteran Organizations, he um, he was there, and um, and there was there's a Mark Kennedy Center for African American Heritage of uh, Colonel Charles Young, and so. Um, so anyway, um, he wrote this really, really wonderful, wonderful article, which I'm not going to read all of, but um, he uh, he mentions that you know he talks about, it, and I think I think we spoke about it, how um, uh, how um, I guess was it Lieutenant Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Young was um, he was de- he was retired, uh, he, he was forced into a medical retirement. And what happened um, with his medical retirement, um, He, uh, while he was waiting, he appealed it to the War Department uh, because he wanted to serve in the war. Um, and so um, 
And so he waited for a year for the reply. And on June 6, 1918, he rode on horseback and walked 497 miles from Wilberforce, Ohio, where he taught at the university there, to Washington, D.C. to prove his fitness to be returned to active duty. And he was returned to active duty on November 6, 1918. And the war ended five days later with the signing of the armistice. And, and by keeping him out of the war, I'm quoting, um, it denied him the opportunity of advancement to the rank of brigadier general. And, and we know that um, the first African um, person to reach that rank was, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank now, um, who is the um, the first person to, to get the rank of brigadier general? Because um, actually, um, <laughs> uh, Colonel Charles Young um, tutored him in math. Yeah, uh, Benjamin Davis, both his yeah, uh, yeah, Benjamin O. Davis, right? Directly, uh, their commission and their uh, stature is directly related to Colonel Charles Young, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, teaching them, and that's that's what he was doing at Wilberforce is creating mm-hmm. the military science uh, program. At that that university, and so today, uh, General Williams is a superintendent at West Point, and all of this is directly related to, to Colonel Charles Young. And mm-hmm. you know, there's you know effort to make him Brigadier General. My personal opinion is you, you're <clears throat> you're spending a lot of time and energy fighting the system instead of uh, you know encouraging men and women uh, to take a look at military science and, you know, creating another generation of Buffalo soldiers, youth Buffalo soldiers all over the planet to be engineers, to be able to preserve and protect the environment, to be able to, you know, walk down the streets in your community safely. So if we focus on the, the, the positive attributes, the way the man lived his life, and quite frankly, if we even say his wife's name and look at her legacy, uh, I think we'll be better served. Uh, there's a reason why there's no museum in, in San Francisco at the Presidio. There's a reason why, you know, the trail in California, um, you know, at some point we got to stop fighting and stop, you know, being positive and building instead of using, you know, a great legacy as something to say, hey, yeah, it was racism. Yeah, he should have put a woulda. But this is, I mean, the man was born enslaved. And mm-hmm. anybody that thinks that, that, you know, systemic institutional racism does not exist is, you know, mentally challenged. So we have an opportunity to talk about, you know, the fact that the man spoke seven languages that most people don't talk about. We could talk about mm-hmm. how, um, you know, he was a military attache. What was he doing in Haiti? What was he doing in Santo Domingo? What was he doing in Liberia for five years? What was? How did he die in Nigeria? You know, what was he doing? How did how did that impact? You know, the the men and women who ended up liberating Nigeria from British control. So you know, I, I'm more interested in in focusing on the positive aspect and how it can change our lives today. Because we don't have very good trade and commerce with. Nigeria today, and he was talking about trade and commerce with Africa, you know, in 19, uh, <clears throat> in the 19, or early 1915, 1916, and how to use these ports and how to have railroads built and how to have roads built. 
that we need to be doing today. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really amazing, you know, that besides being an outstanding, you know, soldier and leader, educator and diplomat, he was also a composer, you know, and a musician. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the man was so well-rounded. And you think, wow, he did all this, and you think, well, he must have lived to be a ripe old age. And he actually didn't live, you know, to be that old. I mean, um, yeah. Um, so anyway, um, it's really yeah, great. He, sort he, of he the, yeah, he, his, his story is just amazing. I mean, he was <clears throat> in the swamps. I mean, we're talking about rural bush Africa uh, in, you know, 1920s. And, you know, he was, the only time he was shot was in Liberia. And he died in Nigeria while it was protected and supposedly uh, part of the British crown. Um, you know, I'm sure that parts were, but I'm sure there were parts of Nigeria that were very rural. And here this brother is riding through with a uniform, probably not with a uniform when he was in uh, Nigeria, but he certainly was com- in command. And he certainly was, um, you know, an American soldier in British Nigeria today, um, and that's where he ended up dying. And there's not good information on on what exactly happened. Mhm. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you before before we um, we uh, ask um, uh, Baba Akin San, Sanya um, to tell us, you know, more about the Buffalo Soldier history. Um, which you know we were talking about last night, um, which is really fascinating. Um, what what um, what drew you to the to serve in the military, uh, Kabaka? Well, uh, it was really uh, part of a family legacy. Yeah, and I have mm-hmm. two other brothers, and <clears throat> um, I really wanted to leave Sacramento, uh, and so I, you know, joined the army against. Uh, you know the, the best wishes of you know, many of my family members, but uh, I was able to um, see a little bit of around the United States and, and and have a good skill. I was trained to fix medical machines, and so you know when I got out of the regular army, I was in the Army Reserves and was able to spend <clears throat> many weekends at the Presidio. Uh, Fixing medical machines and you know enjoying a weekend in the Bay Area, which was always fun. And so, but I never was told about the Buffalo Soldiers' profound impact. Uh, it may have been there, I just didn't see it, and nobody shared it with me. But when I found out about it uh, three years ago, you know, I've mm-hmm. I've been on a, a, a Charles Young um, really high because the things that he's done are some of the things that we've been attempting to do and some of the things that we've done over the last, uh, you know, 20 years, uh, teaching Pan-African history. Uh, <clears throat> his, his family still owns a, a large farm in Ohio, uh, farming, uh, looking at how we can expand uh, transportation systems. Well, that's what he did. He built roads. He built helped build ports. And so that's what we're embarking on doing uh, as we uh, ban California trade and commerce the exact same thing he was doing, um, you know, a hundred years ago. Mhm. Wow. Yeah. So, um, Baba Akinsanya, thanks for your patience. So, um, what drew you to um, to the military service, and you know, sort of were you sort of treading in the footsteps of your ancestors? Um, 
So what? Well, you, most of my what was the calling? most of my ancestors. <laughs> I had I had uncles in the army, navy. I had a couple of uncles that were in the Marine Corps, and um, mm-hmm. I had an older brother that was in the Marine Corps. But it wasn't. I I I don't think I could have joined the military because I was illiterate. I graduated high school mm-hmm. reading at a second grade level, so mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have passed the test. But in 1966, I was drafted into the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I was going in the Army, but when I got to the induction center in Oakland, they had us count off, and I was one of the ones that was the number that went to the Marine Corps. So I was in the Marine Corps for two years. Um, mm-hmm. And I, 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 I guess it was good because most of the brothers in the Marine Corps could read, and they were uh, pretty down with uh, history African history, and they were putting a lot of us other brothers that were illiterate, they were giving us history and teaching us. We used to have soul sessions where they would give us information on everything historical, and that's what uh, sparked my interest in in history, and that's where I heard about the Buffalo Soldiers and also the Black Panther Party. I heard about mm-hmm. those things while I was in Vietnam, and um, we would have discussions at our soul sessions in Vietnam about, I guess, what what made it interesting is with all of us were from different parts of America. We had brothers from New York, from Cleveland, from St. Louis, from Chicago, from everywhere. And we were all together, and we would get letters from home. And in the soul sessions, we would talk about the letters we got, <laughs> the fact that each every week somebody had a friend or a relative of theirs from another city was killed by the police and a gun was planted on near the body or on the body. And we were getting all these stories every week. So we were very clear on the abuse that was taking place with, uh, with, the, with, the, with the brothers. Uh, and once I, once I uh, got out of the Marine Corps, I ended up in the Black Panther Party as a lieutenant of culture for the Sacramento chapter. But um, I, my father was telling me about the Buffalo Soldiers because he had an older brother that was a Buffalo Soldier. And uh, that's when I, I got a real interest in doing some research. That's when I discovered that in Africa they had a cavalry called the Bornu Cavalrymen. And they were, they were uh, instructed to patrol the coast of West Africa, the whole Guinea coast, all, all the way from Cameroons up to uh, Guinea. And um, what, they, what their assignment was, they were supposed to any, any slavers they caught, they would release the, the captives and they would behead the, the slavers. And this is what they did. Now, some of these, some of these brothers, some of the Bornu cavalrymen were also captured and taken as slaves. That happened, too. And um, these guys were so knowledgeable about horses. They knew how to breed them. They knew how to ride them. They knew how to train them. They could do things on horses that was basically human impossible. I don't think nobody can do that nowadays. But they would basically live with these horses and had so much knowledge about horses. The ones that were captured and taken as slaves, and they ended up in uh, the United States and the, and the Caribbean, uh, these brothers taught their children about horses. 
So when the Civil War broke out and some of the brothers were in the Army and their their uh, commanding officers found out how much they knew about horses and how to train them, they put them in the cavalry. And so came the Ninth and 10th Cavalry. Uh, and, and see, a lot of people don't relate the Buffalo Soldiers uh, to the Bornu Cavalrymen in Africa, but that's where it started. And there's still a lot of research to be done, and I challenge young people to uh, do some research on the Bornu Cavalrymen. You know, I mean, I've done a lot of a lot of reading. I've traveled to Africa about 14 times uh, doing research, but not just on <laughs> not just on the Bornu Cavalrymen of the Buffalo Soldiers. But, you know, my interest was art, so that's what I was really uh, studying, African art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you spell um, Bornu um, Calverman? How do you spell the Bornu part? Bornu is B-O-R-N-U. Okay. And and, and when you, in you your travels... Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. You can also look up uh, uh, the, the different horse breeds in Africa. Because they had oh. several different horse breeds in Africa, and uh, I mean the, the Moors, they were connected with uh, the Bornu cavalrymen. So all these, okay. and you know, it's just so much we gotta we gotta find out. We gotta get information on. Mhm. Yeah. So um, in your travels, when you were um, uh, doing the research on the Bornu cavalrymen, where did you find out? Most of, or some of your information about them, like what countries in Africa? Oh, Nigeria, Ghana, um, Nigeria. Mali. Um, uh-huh. uh, the French, the French-speaking countries was a little more difficult because I really couldn't get that much information in uh, Ivory Coast and Senegal. But you know, I, I, I did. I noticed the horses that they had. It wasn't like everybody mm-hmm. was riding around on horses. Horses mm-hmm. were something that was reserved for people that were wealthy. If you had a oh. horse, you was somebody special. So mm-hmm. in African culture and African art, a horse was a symbol of power. Mm-hmm. So, and then you know, and, and it's not it's not so much for that information. I think you got to realize that we have a lot of history that none of us are aware of in this country. I like to Kikuyu, the rebellion at the head in Kenya, led by Didan Komati Wachuru. I mean, I, I I studied with the uh, with the Kikuyu, and they put me down with Didan Komati, you know. And these were revolutionaries, and I guess one of my biggest interests was was the, the different revolutionary movements that took place in Africa and in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. You know, and you find these these brothers with these skills with these skills of horsemen, you find them all over Africa and the Caribbean and in the United States in, in different parts. Yeah, you, you mentioned that you actually have, um, I told you that I was I participated in the recent um, Slave Rebellion reenactment in um, in New Orleans along the River Road, the German um, exactly. uh, plantations, and um, this past weekend, um, November 8th, 9th, However, the uh, the original um, rebellion, insurrection, march um, occurred in January um, 1811. And you said you have 
ancestors that were there that participated. Yeah, I have a I have a great great grandfather that was actually captured. Him and one of his sons. He had four sons, and him and one of his sons that were captured were beheaded, mm-hmm. and their heads were put on fence posts along the river yeah. road. And you know, I mean, that was. And this is a slave rebellion that's never talked about. This was the biggest slave rebellion this country ever had. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's right. And and when you study that rebellion, you know, you see how important it is uh, when you're organizing to be able to follow orders. You know, that rebellion was put down, but a lot of people had to get out of Louisiana. And uh, my family, uh, they were the teamers at the time. They had to leave Louisiana, and I know that they went up. River Road to Natchez and crossed off into Mississippi. And uh, a couple of the brothers went to uh, South Carolina, and I got a hookup with the teamers in South Carolina. And I know that um, my grandfather and his, and my, my grandfather and his, they were in Mississippi. They settled in Mississippi. But it was, it, I mean, there's so many stories that you can get when you pay attention to what your 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 elders say. And I've got all kind of information, all kind of history, family history. And I guess getting that family history kind of understand what's boiling in your own blood because, you know, I, <laughs> I've, I've had a tremendous history myself in terms of uh, being in the Black Panther Party, uh, being arrested for murder in Sacramento, and sitting on death row in the Sacramento County Jail for a year fighting murder case. Um, but I, and I found out that my father, who had all this history, he wouldn't tell me none of it when I was little. Because when I was 15, I asked him, uh, and he wouldn't tell me. So once I got off death row and I ended up going to St. Louis to visit him, that's when he started giving me all the history. And I guess a lot of a lot of it is not stuff that people would be proud of because a lot of the guys were outlaws, and my uncle was an outlaw. And my daddy said that the reason these guys were outlaws is because they couldn't get jobs doing nothing. So they robbed banks, and they robbed stagecoaches and trains and stole cows. And this is stuff that they did. <laughs> but, you know, that's not a, that's not a kind of proud thing. You know, uh, they had a, my uncle's name was Buck, and his mother's name was Maylee Buck, and uh, him and my grandfather, her and my grandfather weren't married, so she couldn't name him Buck, and he was only 15 when uh, the girl got pregnant, and, you know, he and his father wouldn't let him marry her, so what happened is um, she she had the baby by herself on a different farm and worked as a sharecropper in Mississippi for 10 years on that farm until she left with her son, who they called Buck. And and this is really interesting, and I'm trying to find this out, uh, but he was such an outlaw when he grew up because he watched the lynching of his mother and about 30, 40 other uh, people that won't own a sharecropping plantation that left the plantations and got caught. And when they got caught, she asked one of the men 
to lift her son, Buck, up in this tree. And he raised the boy up to get a limb, and she told him to climb up in that tree as high as he could go. And don't come down and don't say nothing, whatever you hear or see. And he said, yes, ma'am. So he climbed on up in that tree, and he stayed up in that tree for two days. And he watched as they captured all these Africans who had tried to flee. They stripped them off naked, tied their hands behind their back. They raped five of the women, and then they tied ropes around their necks and threw them over trees and pulled them up in the trees with the horses and left their bodies hanging in the trees until they died. And this 10-year-old boy watched that. And the second day, some black folks came by and cut him down and was burying him, and that's when he got out of the tree. One of the men put him on his horse and took him back to um, my grandfather. And uh, and my grandfather raised him until he was 16, and then he ran off and joined, uh, joined the Army. That's when he got with the Buffalo Soldiers. And I don't know what last name he was using or how to track him. The only thing I know about him is that they called him Buck, you know. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a movie that Sidney Porter and Harry Belafonte did called Buck and the Preacher. Buck and the Preacher, right. Yeah, and I had some historians tell me that they think that was based off my Uncle Buck because he was notorious. I mean, he killed so many people. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the people that he killed, like he fought in he fought in Cuba with, with, the, with the Buffalo soldiers. And also the 125th Infantry was there, too, and they were also Africans. And then mm-hmm. they sent them to the Philippines. And he fought in the Philippines. And then when they sent him back, when they came back from the Philippines, they were in San Francisco at the Presidio. And they they sent them to work, some of them in Yosemite and some of them in the Sequoia National Forest. And he was up there, uh, and he told my daddy that they was working them like slaves in Yosemite. And he said he wasn't no slave. He said he was a fighting man. So he stole a horse and split and he rode that horse until the horse dropped dead. But he was about starving by then. And uh, he was eating the horse when the Indians found him. And they, and they took him and they got him well, you know. And, uh, I mean, that, that whole story is just... And when I saw that, that movie, Buck and the Preacher, when I first saw it, I didn't realize uh, the implications of that. And the fact that you just have a man they call Buck, and everybody knew him. I mean, he was notorious all over that area. But the one thing that happened is he married this Indian uh, sister, Indian that found him. He married his sister, and she was eight months pregnant, and they had went to sell some cows because they was doing that. And when they came back, they had found her dead. Eight months pregnant, she had been raped and murdered, and they... They found the guys who did it, 15 guys who did it. All of them didn't rape her. Only three of them actually raped her. But they caught each one of them one by one, him and that Indian, and they tortured them. And they they tortured them until they confessed and told on all the rest of them. And they, they, they went by and they caught each one of them one by one and tortured them. And they all said that some of them told that they didn't have nothing to do with it. Well, their question was, well, did you do anything to help her? And when they said no, they said, well, that's hard, son. You got to go. And that's just the way that was. Hmm. Where was that, um, that your, um, I, I, 
Because Buck, your he was your great 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 uncle or great uncle or who is this? Who is this? Buck. Well, Buck. Who was? Oh, he? Buck was my Buck was my was actually my father's, but he was he was twenty years older than my father. Mm-hmm. Because um, when they were coming out of when they were coming out of Louisiana, uh, he was I think his Joseph that was that's my grandfather Joseph Teamer. He was 15, and th- th- this girl got pregnant on the way. I don't. I guess I don't know how old she was, but her name was Maylee Buck, and that's all I that's all I have on her is her name was Maylee Buck, and she was lynched with the rest of them. Right. You know. Yeah. But, so uh, so Buck and, so Buck is your is your great uncle. He is my uncle. He's my father's brother. Oh, your father's brother. Oh, dang. Yeah, yeah he's, he's my father's okay. older brother. <laughs> but he was, yeah. you know, he was 20 years older than my father. That's why there was, yeah. you know, that's why I was so so different. Yeah, so where where um was he? I'm just trying to figure out like where where was his wife um killed? Like was it in California? Where where did it happen? No, I think that was either in Oklahoma or Texas. It was somewhere somewhere around there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was in even wow. in Oklahoma, Texas, because they were they were living in uh, Oklahoma, I think, territory. I think there was a lot of mm-hmm. Indians living there and mm-hmm. a lot of outlaws. It was like the Badlands. Mhm. Wow. Like Badlands. So, so how how do, how do these stories show up? You know, in your work, um, like you have. Um, I'm looking at, you know, you, you draw, you paint, you have bronze sculptures, you have ceramics. And this particular, you know, the exhibit that's going to be opening next year um, uh, is going to focus on your terracotta sculptures, um, yes, uh, which are fired using the Western style of Raku technique. And I wonder if you yes, could talk a little bit about, about, your, about your work. And, and then also you could talk more about your, um, your role as the um the minister of culture in in the Sacramento area for the Black Panther Party and that coloring book that you made and okay and will that and will any of that be a and then um third part sorry um, if it's too much I'll, I'll I'm taking notes on what I'm asking um um brother Kubaka mentioned a series of paintings that you've done um on the buffalo soldiers I think that, well I, that I've done a I've done a series that deal with slavery and uh, oh, okay. Africans in, in Western culture or in the West, like mm-hmm. all the black cowboys, you know, because my uncle knew a lot of them, and he wrote with a lot of them. One of the ones that I know for sure was Isom Dart. Um, I think he had another name, but Isom Dart was one of his best friends. So when... Um, I started talking about that, and and the the and the coloring book. I think that people should realize that I was illiterate when I graduated from high school. I couldn't read or write, and but that was, I recognized there was a lot of other brothers and sisters that couldn't read or write, and since I got this history from a lot of those Marines, those older brothers that was putting me down when I was in the Marine Corps, since I got a lot of that history, I started. Uh, drawing and 
and that's when I came up with the idea of of the coloring book. But it was supposed to just be a history book, and it was a history book for people that couldn't read. So I mm-hmm. figured that if they saw the pictures, they would get the history. And it started with Africa, and it ended up with slavery and slave revolts. And oh, um, nice. the problem with it was that when I had the captions in there and I took it to Oakland, uh, Bobby Seale felt that we shouldn't call our people Africans because black people ain't ready to be Africans yet. Well, mm. I disagreed, but, you know, he was the chairman, so... <laughs> they took out all the all the words African and put in black, and that was something oh. that I disagreed with. That's mm. the way it came out. Um, but you know, I I had a <laughs> a copy of that original uh, coloring book that somebody just got a gallery in Sacramento mm. on 20th and J Street. He's talking about doing an exhibit of the coloring book. Oh, nice! Um, and showing it in 2021. So. Okay. Um, I you know we'll just see what happens with that, but um, the the exhibit that we have at the Crocker is going to be all ceramic sculpture, and it deals with African spiritual deities, and also it has some historical characters. Like one of them is Bass Reeves. Bass Reeves was the first U.S. Marshal, African African American west of the Mississippi, and he was one of the baddest cats that ever lived. Matter of fact, they say they based the Lone Ranger on Bass Reeves, and also mm. they say that uh, the the Matt Dillon <laughs> uh, Dodge City they they kind of say that that came from the idea of Bass Reeves too. He was the U.S. Marshal that captured over, mm. and he was in like fourteen shootouts with with uh, desperados. I mean those gun battles that Matt Dillon does yeah. every right. time it comes on. Well, Bass mm-hmm. Reeves actually did that. <laughs> wow! I mean, he was he was a bad dude. Bass Reeves was he was he was <laughs> he was a cold blooded character. Well, one of the sculptures is of Bass Reeves. Then there's <laughs> another one of um, of um, what's his name, John Randall, the Buffalo Soldier. Mm-hmm. You know, John Randall was a uh, was a soldier, and that's when the Indians saw how he fought. That's when they told him he fights like he fights like a buffalo when he's cornered and wounded. What mm. what happened with um with John Randall, John Randall was sent on a to guide some guys on a hunting party. And they went out to hunt. I don't know what they was hunting, they they never said. But there was seventy Cheyenne coming over the hill and they were warriors. And John Randall told these guys, let's get out of here so they tried to get out of here, but the other two guys got killed. And they were chasing John Randall, and they shot him in the shoulder with a with a pistol, and then they shot his horse out from under him, crawled into a ravine, and, and uh, the, the the Cheyenne surrounded him, and he killed so many of them. But they they wounded him from the shoulder with the bullet. They had eleven arrows in him also, and they mm-hmm. say that the Indians were telling all the rest of the Indians after they saw how he fought. They said he fights like the buffalo when he's cornered and wounded. And every time we hit him with an arrow, he would get more strong. He gets stronger and more fierce. <laughs> I mean, that's the way they talked about this cat. So, but oh, there's a wow. sculpture of him there. Yeah. So where where um, John Randall was he? Where was he? Where was he at? Um, and then also um, uh, Bass Reeves. Where what part? You know what? Like, what I'm not. What state? Uh, Bass Reeves was in Oklahoma, I believe. 
Um, okay. But he was well. What he what he was he Bass Reeves was actually a slave, and oh. he fought on the side of the South because his oh, master really? was a colonel. His master was mm. a colonel in the southern in the southern uh, the Confederate Army. And mm-hmm. what happened was after the after the war, him and his master were playing cards or something, and he got into a fight with his master and beat him up. So, mm-hmm. so he had to leave. So when he <laughs> left, he went out. He went out into Oklahoma, which was Indian territory, and there were five different Indian languages that he learned fluently because he lived with the Indians, mm-hmm. and that's why he was so good when he became a a marshal because he knew how to speak the languages of the Indians, and he could go all over Oklahoma, that territory that was called the Badlands, that nobody wanted to really go in, but he could go in there with no problem. Because he, he knew how to speak. He knew how to communicate. He knew how to communicate with all the Indians, and plus he wasn't scared of nobody. He was a big mm. dude. He's about six three, I think. <laughs> mm. He okay. wasn't no joke. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Wow. So tell us more about your exhibit. I noticed that you have, um, are these the uh, figures that are on horses? Because you have some figures on horseback. Yeah, those figures on horseback are what they call equestrian figures in African art. And whenever there's a figure on horseback in African culture, the fact that, that that the person is on a horse, that gives him a power. There's a power associated with that person. And, you know, I have to explain things uh, to people about the exhibits because when you look at pieces, the heads are large. And in African art, the reason that the heads are usually large in African sculptures is because the head is associated with the ori or the brain or the spirit. All those Mm -hmm. are the three things that make a man uh, different than other animals. So the man... His head, his brain is how he can control an elephant or control a horse or a camel or whatever he's dominating to ride. He's not as strong as them, but his, uh, the intellect of the man and the woman uh, give them the capability of controlling other animals that are far stronger than them physically. So mm-hmm. that's why the heads are, are, are larger, because the head is important. Right, yeah. Huh. So tell us more about your exhibit. Um, uh, Kubaka, what? you're really quiet. Do you have any comments? Well, no, no. I'm. You can imagine. Twenty years now, I've been at yeah. the, uh, the feet of Akasanya, and uh, <laughs> I'm still there. So no, I. This is. In fact, when we get off the phone, I'll probably we probably have lunch somewhere. Uh, <laughs> uh, his his story um, is. What should be documented is it, he's born in Sacramento, and for whatever reason, we have yet to figure out the strategy on putting together uh, a for real first class African museum in the capital of the state of California. And uh, as you can see, just his personal story uh, mm-hmm. is will fill up a museum, just as it fills oh, up yeah. Gallery Capone and Long Beach. So we have mm-hmm. all of these hidden figures of African history, many of them walking around with us, we just don't know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'll i be quiet. <laughs> okay, Baba. I can sign you. Well, Continue. The, the, work, 
the work that's in the museum that it's going to be in the museum is only sculpture, ceramic sculpture. Mm-hmm. But I also oh, have okay. oil paintings, and I have hundreds yeah. and hundreds of oil paintings. And then I have watercolors. And the watercolor series, uh, I don't really show that because it's not it's not the kind of work you show, kind of work mm-hmm. that people uh, see as a historical thing because a lot of the things that I learned from elders, like mm-hmm. one of the things that they would say is that whenever they tortured uh, people on a plantation, they would make sure all the pregnant women watched for mm-hmm. some reason, they had the belief that if a pregnant woman watched torture or a lynching or when they cut a woman's stomach open and t- tore the baby out, if a pregnant woman watched this, they felt that the babies wouldn't come out uh, rebellious. Now, I don't understand mm-hmm. the logic of that, but this is stuff that I learned from elders. I pay a lot of attention to old folks. Um, I mean, it was an elder in St. Louis when I was 15 that taught me about the Master Lock Company because I never knew that Master Lock got they started making slave shackles. <clears throat> and this old man, uh, we called him Mr. Napachin. He was 83, and I was 15. And I used to sit out and drink coffee with him in the morning, and a guy's battery got stolen that lived in the same apartment complex, and he went and bought a a new battery, and he bought a chain and a lock to put on his hood. Mm-hmm. And when Mr. Nabuchin saw that man's lock, he got mad, and he started trying to hit that man with the cane. <laughs> he was yelling at him. And I was 15, and I was kind of scared. So I asked my mm-hmm. daddy. I said, Daddy, what's wrong with him? And my daddy said, just leave him alone right now. Wait until tomorrow. So the next day, I sat down with him. We was drinking coffee, and I asked him why he got mad at that man for for uh, trying to lock up his, his battery so nobody wouldn't steal it. And he told me, I told that nigga not to buy no master lock. Then people got started making slave shackles for our people. That's how they got rich. He said that mm-hmm. when he was a boy, they used to have signs all over the South, buy a master lock. It is as though the master himself were guarding your slave. Mm-hmm. Wow. Can you believe that? And then wow. during the Garvey movement, he said during the Garvey movement, uh, they, they had him take all them signs down and destroy them. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, and, and, you know, I, I was fortunate because I found a modern-day shackles with Master Lock mm-hmm. written right on them. And I have that oh. in my collection in the museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, wow. I, I find that you pay attention to old Africans and old Native Americans, and that's mm-hmm. where I get a lot of my history, especially the Alamo. I mean, we sit up and we think about Davy Crockett and all the so-called Alamo. Well, mm-hmm. the reason that took place was because the Mexicans had told those guys they couldn't bring those slaves into Texas. They said they couldn't. You can't have your slave. You can have the land, but you got to work it yourself. And them mm-hmm. guys said, "Well, you know what? They can't tell us what we can do with our niggas." So, what happened was Santa Ana came marching on them, and they they all held up at the Alamo with their slaves, and they had mm-hmm. these Africans chained up at the Alamo, and when Santa Ana defeated them, they released all the Africans, and they executed the people that were holding them. And these were just poor white boys from different uh, southern cities that never had anything. When they got these land grants in Texas, they felt that they bring their slaves in to work the land. And you got a bunch of slaves, you can work thousands of acres of land, you know? 
But right. the Mexicans said, no, we abolished slavery a long time ago, and you can't have them there. Mm-hmm. So I try to push these stories to young people so they'll know that we have never had an antagonistic relationship with indigenous people, Mexicans, mm-hmm. Indians, or anything. All of our relationships with them has always been positive because when we used to run off from enslaved plantations, they were the ones who used to take care of us. And Mm -hmm. if you talk to Native Americans, I used to talk a lot with Chief Longwalk of the Lakota up at Red Wind. We'd sit and talk, and he'd tell me all kinds of stories uh, about our relationship with with African Americans and indigenous Americans. And then that's where I learned about James Beckworth. James Beckworth Mm -hmm. was one of the best scouts they ever had, but he was, his father was a Buffalo soldier, his mother was a Native American, and Custer tried to get James Beckworth to lead him to the Little Bighorn. And James Mm -hmm. Beckworth knew Custer's reputation for killing women and children. So he wasn't taking that boy up there where where these women and children was he knew. So he led Custer Mm -hmm. around in a big circle several times so that the Indians got ready for him. And Custer, when he realized that Beckworth was leading him, you know, in, in circles, he told him, he said, you know what, when I get back to the fort, you're getting court-martialed. So he sent him back to the fort, and he was going to court-martial when he got back. So you all know the rest of the story. Hmm. Yeah, and there's the Beckworth path here, you know, um, going, um, is it going toward Nevada? Is that on the California side, the uh, Beckworth, Beckworth path? Beckworth path. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it even goes up through Yosemite. Right, yeah. Beckwith mm-hmm. Pass is uh, up by Marysville, up through the, it's the lowest elevation over Sierra Nevada, and it's just north of of uh, Lake Lake Tahoe, and it goes down mm-hmm. into Marysville. <clears throat> and there's a town mm-hmm. up there, Beckwith. Yeah, there's, I mean, right. there's so many stories. There's so many beautiful mm-hmm. stories. Yeah, well, yeah they, they really well, are. Yeah. You don't get these stories unless you talk to old folks. And I listen, I've been listening to old folks since I was a kid. I love listening to old folks tell stories because they got well, all the history. Keep, I'm glad you keep uh, listening to old folks because I want you to become one yourself. <laughs> become, become, become what? I hey, look, I'm already old, old folk. You ain't, you I ain't think no I realize I'm already old folk. I'm old folk now myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking um um uh, I was thinking about, you know, our our great uh journalist and historian uh Delilah and also activist Delilah Beasley and um you know that this is the 100th or centennial of her her um her essay um uh slavery negro slavery uh or slavery in California and uh I don't want to let off our audience know that 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 particular essay is available. Um, it's a free. Uh, it's, it's on JSTOR, uh, S-T-O-R, and you can read it. Um, and she talks about, you know, slavery in California, you know, after, um, you know, the original um, um, founders of this, 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 uh, of, of, um, of the state, you know, Mexico, you know, when it, when, um, when Mexico lost California, Texas, Arizona, um, what was free. Um, ended up, yeah. you know, being being um, slave, a slave state, and um, and that slavery actually lasted longer here. In 1865, you know, de facto slavery was still happening until um, 1874. So, and you um, know what? Hmm. I'm glad you said that because my daughter just saw the um, the Harry Tubman uh, movie, 
Yes, yeah, that awesome? And yeah, she really called me and we were talking. Big Barton? Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful movie. Oh, okay. Well, she was telling me about it, and I said, okay. And then she said, she said, but slavery wasn't out here in California. I said, yes, it was, baby. You know, mm-hmm. but I didn't, I didn't have any documentary, anything she could go read. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when I tell people things, uh, they want to see proof. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So yes, I do understand. But, yeah. So I'm ho- I hope she's listening to this radio station and she can look for that. Uh, the writing. I will send. I'll send you a link about. to it. Um, yeah, I, I've been giving it out. You know, since um, I learned about it from um, from Brother Kubaka, it was easy to yeah. find. I went online, just put in. You know, Delilah Beasley, because she's also her 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 phenomenal book, Negro Trailblazers, is also having a centennial uh, publication year this year. Um, she wrote. What's her first name? Uh, Slavery. Delilah. No, what's she it? wrote. Um, Beasley is her last name. B E A L E Y. No, I know the last name is Beasley. What's the first name? Delilah. Delilah. Oh, Delilah Beasley. Okay, I got it. Right. Yeah, and um, yeah, she was. Um, she worked for the Oakland Tribune. First, um, I don't she was the first woman, but first African person to write for the Tribune, and she was a you know she was a lobbyist. Um, you know, and she pushed you know Jack London, not not Jack London, but um, what's the name of the. Um, I can't remember his name. The um, uh, the governor of of the state um, in in a few areas, you know, around um, making um, life, you know, more fair for people of African descent, you know, in this state, particularly in the Bay Area, because she 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 um, relocated to Oakland, and that was her that was her home base, and she didn't have any children, you know, she was like. She dedicated her life to to our our you know making sure that we had justice and freedom, and she used her pen, and 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 her access to the media to be able to like write these columns and write these stories and publish. So she was really really phenomenal, uh, Delilah Beasley. Yeah, we're gonna. <clears throat> I mean, again, what she said, uh, her hundred anniversary, her work, her personal. Uh, Visits all over the state of California to dig up our, you know, Pan African heritage is mm-hmm. it's the the best source. A lot of people don't give it uh, credence, but I think it's the best resource, and that's my jumping off point. You know, I go, you know, see what she did. <laughs> two, you know, two two pages of documentation. Each one of those chapters is a book in itself, uh, mm-hmm. and so as we enter 2020, our theme is. Uh, the women and a few good men, and we're going to lift up the black woman, Delilah Beasley. In terms of history, there's there's nobody else that comes close, uh, male mm-hmm. or female, to doing the work uh, in person, uh, firsthand accounts of our history. There's nobody better. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, we think about, you know, Mary Ellen Pleasant, you know, and her work, you know, in um, – you know, in the Underground Railroad, you know, and bringing Africans here, you know, to California and, you know, and putting them up, you know, in jobs and housing and and funding, you know. Like, I think, um, you know, she was, she was um, getting ready to ride because she rode as well. And she was going to ride, you know, on, um, you know, with, you know, and John Brown and, and something happened. Otherwise, she would have been martyred. Um, but she funded, well, you know, you know actually, the thing at Harper's Ferry. She financed it. She financed I know, John saying. Brown, yeah, and John yeah, Brown wouldn't listen, and uh, he uh, moved faster. She couldn't get out there time enough, 
And you saw what mm-hmm. happened to John Brown because <clears throat> he was operating with just half the money and half the information. But mm-hmm. she, I mean, almost personally helped finance the first action that led to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Right, right, fine. yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, it, and it, just, mm-hmm. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I was just talking about, you know, um, uh, uh, Baba, um, um, I can Sonia, you know, you were talking, well, in the when I was reading about sort of the spiritual aspect of your work, and, 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 and Mary Ellen Pleasant, you know, she was a mambo. Um, you know, she, you know, she practiced, in, you know, indigenous African spirituality, and, you know, she lived, she lived for quite a while in New Orleans before they had to leave because um, there were suspicions around, you know, her and her husband's, <laughs> you know, work, you know, with freedom, freeing African people. So they had to like uh-huh. keep on. They had to like leave and keep on moving. But um, so um, go ahead, Kabaka, and then I I wanted to ask um, uh, Baba um, Akinsanya to talk a little bit more about African spirituality and and how that shows up in his work. Well, yeah, well you know, definitely the connection. It, it connects to Louisiana, which correct connects directly to uh, Cuba, which connects directly to um, you know the Yoruba. Uh, and Haiti influence mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Haiti. Uh, it's all it's all connected, and that's mm-hmm. what is uh, real clear in the work uh, of Akisanya, uh and what's going to be at the Crocker Art Museum um, the first weekend Black History Month. Mm-hmm. You know when I when I first realized um, when I was working, I used to I've been I've been doing this uh, ceramic sculpture since 1971. And uh, I didn't know where it was coming from, all these African uh, uh, deities. I didn't really know what they were until I started going to Africa. And I think I went to Africa first in 1974. And it wasn't until my trip in 1994 when I went into this slave dungeon in Elmina, Elmina Castle in Ghana, And what happened to me there is while we were on tour, um, some sisters was asking the docent about these big old iron balls that were in the, in the courtyard out there. And uh, the guy, the docent, didn't really want to say what they were for. So hmm. the women kept pushing him, and he finally decided he would tell them that a lot of the women that they brought into those castles were were beautiful. And the man who ran the fort would want to make sex with them, and they would always refuse. So what they would do is they would take these women and they would chain them up by the leg out in the courtyard, totally nude. And they wouldn't let them loose until they agreed to go up the ladder to this guy's bedroom, which was right off the courtyard. And when he told that story, I was standing next to a guy from France, and he started was so funny, and he started laughing. Really? And I don't know what came over me, but I just grabbed him by the throat, and I was trying to get my knife out. <laughs> hmm. But my wife grabbed me because she, she's real perceptive when I'm getting ready to go off. So she pulled me off of him and made me leave. So as I went up the path, I was walking out of this dungeon, and I was looking at the floor and how the bricks were worn round from the barefooted Africans who thousands of them who crossed it that way and they were smooth and I was just looking and I was thinking about all the people who had gone through this 
and I got out and I was got to the sunlight. I was outside and I waited until the tour was over. And then the docent came over to me, and he told me, he said, "Brother, he said I understand how you feel because I because I was I really went off in the sky." He said, "You and your wife can go back in there by yourself." I said, "Oh, thanks." So, so me and her went back in there. Since she had already done the whole tour, she went one way and I went another. And I went into this dungeon where they said they had, uh, I don't know, where they, it was the biggest dungeon they had, where most of the people were housed. And someone had put an altar up with candles. And I knelt down before the altar and I started meditating. And all of a sudden, I heard a female voice say, we've been waiting for you. Mm-hmm. And it scared the mess out of me. And I looked up, and I saw all these African spirits. They were standing there, and this woman said, we need you to teach our children who were stolen about our history, about our culture, and about our religions. That's what she said. Mm. And I started thinking to myself, I said, but, you know, I don't know that much. This was in 94. I said, I don't know that much about this stuff. She said, don't worry. We have been guiding your hands. Can you believe that? Hmm. Wow. And it shocked me. It really shocked me. But then when I when I got back to my studio and I looked around and I saw the work that I had been doing, and when, while I'm working, I just kind of get into like a zone, you know. I'm not present. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mind is not there. I'm 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 working, and and my wife knows it because she knows that. If I'm working, she gotta she gotta talk to me and give me about five or ten minutes to come back on this side. You know, she gotta get me out of it. Usually, she doesn't bother me when I'm working, but uh, I started to understand that there's some type of a spiritual thing that's taking place, and the importance of this collection that I've accumulated over the years, and how important it is because this is where all of our history and our culture is in this artwork. <clears throat> yeah. That's yeah. Connection. Yeah. I want to. Yeah. I um. You know, when you mention about um. You know, the torture. You know, and and I think about um. Brian Stevenson's um. Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, and the uh, National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum from Slavery to Mass Incarceration, and the whole idea of racial terror killings and racial terror. Period, you know, um, and and the psychological impact of 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 this terrorism on the yet to be born, and and how you know when these 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 children that were not born yet, you know, experienced, um, you know, witnessed inside of their mothers, you know, this 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 terrorism, and their mothers, you know, because since they're connected still you know, um, because the babies are inside of their mom, you know, she's, so that's true. you know, sort of, yeah. And so, and so when the child is born, the child doesn't have any language for the terror that he or she experienced. And it does, it does affect um, the child. Um, and, the, but, but the child doesn't have any words for it. You know, that's what, you know, why we call it a ma'afa, right? This is like a continuation of the great calamity or the reoccurring, oh my God. Um, you know, you violence. Know. And even now, you know, we have, you know, we have babies being traumatized, you know, in our cities, you know, when, 
when when people are being shot and we're hearing all these noises and, and people are getting on their floors in their homes and babies don't know they just know their mama says like get down right and then yeah and then and they don't have any language for this and then they grow up and this is like normalized but still it's still traumatic because people are dying and and then you know you know then it since it's becoming more of a military state now so in some communities they've got you know these these armored trucks also rolling down the street i mean it's just like craziness in so far as you know what you know, trying to I didn't believe, trying to be normal yeah mm-hmm. i didn't believe that was true when i heard about it i thought that that was just something that the white folks believed that's mm-hmm. why they would cuz i have a painting that i did of mm-hmm. these women pregnant women standing around while this guy cuts this baby out of this woman's stomach. Mm-hmm. And all these pregnant women standing around watching it. And when I, you know, because I heard old folks told me that this is what they would would do because they thought it would make the baby afraid to be rebellious. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, and, I, and I just painted, I painted these paintings because, you know, that's what I do. Even though I, I know that people believe that, I know that they believed it, but I thought it was just something that they were that that they were. I don't know. I didn't know that 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 really happens. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it kind of hard yeah. to believe, but. Mhm. Well. Yeah. So then, so then you wonder, like, okay, so art, you know, um, is also, you know, sort of where the remedy lies too. You know, in our cultural expressions. You know, that's how we can, you know, face you know, this, you know, like, you know, the Sankofa concept, right? You know, we go back to fetch it, but then sometimes, you know, like it's there's it's fear, you know, it's fearful to actually witness this. So then you think about, you know, sort of Dred Scott and, you know, having this, you know, hosting and, and, and facilitating this slave rebellion reenactment. So we're reenacting, you know, this freedom march, right? This is a freedom march. So So that's a way of, of cleansing ourselves and of, you know, sort of changing the story, you know, sort of recasting um, what was once fearful, you know, in in a different light. Because it's a real, it's a, you know, it, you know, the, the becoming well and healing is something that you can't like wish that happens. Like it's actually a conscious act that you have to like know that something is broken to be able to fix it. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's that's where we are. And uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Joy DeGuri, uh with post traumatic slave syndrome. Um, yeah, Joy DeGuri mm-hmm. dedicated her life, you know, to to not only talking about it but ways and steps to address it. Because mm-hmm. if we don't think we're not well, we think we're perfectly whole and healthy, and you can see in our behavior that we're not. And I'm talking about mm-hmm. us as a people. Uh, mm-hmm. We've learned to adapt and learned how to, you know, beat the system. Uh, some folks with PhDs, uh, and you look at, you know, their lives, they're just, they just, they're crazy. But they have a, mm-hmm. a, a high degree from some school institution, but you go to their house, and they run around thinking that they're white people, and they're black as ace of spades. Yeah, so you they, think they that can't deal with their these paintings that of all that uh, torture and stuff, you think they should be shown? Um, 
You know that that's a good question because at some point, um, you know, you you think what to what purpose, right? Does this serve? Um, you know, reliving the tragedy. I I think I really that's what I really appreciated about the Freedom March. You know, like marching to New Orleans. You know, um, slavery or death. You know, you know. I, yeah. That's what I liked about that, as opposed to reenacting our. Um, you know, something where, um, yeah, like why would I want to reenact being enslaved, right? I mean, to what purpose is that? Um, like what purpose does that serve? Um, it just, I, I think it's 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 an unnecessary traumatic experience that I could I could resist because I have a lot of friends that don't they don't go to the movies anymore where black folks are getting lynched. It's like I don't do that anymore. I've seen my last movie <laughs> like that. And well, you know, because, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, well, I I I think that <clears throat> the assignment that I was given mm-hmm. was to was to do this work, and maybe because see, I know that these kids nowadays that are growing up, they don't know nothing about slavery. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't. I had a I had an experience where I had a a, a painting of an auction block slave auction. And the guy was standing on the block, and he was naked. And I had some high school students from Poly High School passing by my place, and they came in, and they were looking at the at the painting. And one guy asked me, "How come you don't have no clothes on?" <clears throat> I told him, "I said, well, when they had you on the auction block, they would have you naked, and the the people that were bidding on you would be poking you and touching you and." have you turn around and jump and all this kind of stuff. And he said, uh-uh, he couldn't believe it. Mm. So I said to myself, and this, and, and, and that's, not the, that's not the first time. Uh, the mm-hmm. first time was when Roots first came out, and I was right. in Fresno at the time. And uh, I w- went to the liquor store, and I was coming out of the liquor store, and I saw uh, about 15 youngsters over there beating the hell out of a cab driver. And I ran across the street, and I pulled him off the man. And I said, what are y'all doing? And he said, didn't you see Roots? I said, yeah, I saw Roots. He said, well, he's white. I said, oh, Lord. And I said, man, that man had nothing to do with this. Leave that man alone. So I had to pull him off this guy. And he got out, and he was all bloody, and they had beat him into an irrigation canal across the street from Lickstone. And I, 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 I said, damn. I said, you know what? I said, these kids don't even know this history, and when they get it, they're shocked. They're yeah. shocked so much that they react physically and violently to people because this is something that they haven't been given doses of. Mm-hmm. At that time, I made up my mind, even if I'm not doing these paintings to sell, I'm doing mm-hmm. it so, these, so our kids will know the history. Mm-hmm. And when that woman told me, we need you to teach our children who were stolen, about our history, about our culture, and about our religion, mm-hmm. I think that this is the assignment that I'm supposed to do. I mm-hmm. just need to make sure that there's a venue where it can be presented and mm-hmm. where people can see it. You know, when you have right. this in your home and you grow up with it on your wall and your grandmother and your grandfather can tell the kids about this stuff, then they're not shocked when they realize it. You know, in that shop, mm-hmm. and then they 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 know they're ready, they're prepared. Right. 
Yeah, I think I think it needs context. Um, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's not. Yeah, it's because we have a lot of a lot of imagery. You know, that's out of context, and you know, and we have, and so when there's no context, then then what could be a positive outcome from you know knowing this history? And also, sort of, its effect on the person, on the spectator, um, particularly since this is a personal thing. You know, these are your people. These people that you're looking at look like you. You know, um, yeah. Yeah. you know that really sort of it sort of really takes away from its potential in in undoing some of the knots that we're tied up into, right? Um, you know, that we're born like we're born kind of like tangled. And then and then we and then we're like delivered into this 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 paradigm that is not uh, one that's about African freedom and 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 you know and and justice and and the kind of life where we could actually have be free and happy you know and 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 be prosperous. This is this is not the kind of place that we're born into you know in this Western culture. Um, and all, and the whole world is becoming sort of Western, you know, culture influence. Well, this, that, that, that's the beauty of it is the 400-year celebration, the commission that the United States Congress has <clears throat> authorized, and you know, last Juneteenth uh, in the halls of the United States Congress was the beginning conversation of what did happen over the last 400 years of enslavement and affliction. And so if the context of that is set, we do not have to imagine what happened to us personally. We can look at our family and know. But the world does not know of the things that happened to us. We have yet to have adult conversations about slavery and affliction. I mean, people will argue all day long about whether there was slavery in California or not. We were one vote shy of being part of the Confederacy. I mean, it's nothing to debate, but absent a <clears throat> curriculum design that includes us, absent an African museum in the capital of the fifth largest economy on the planet, where are you going to learn these things? So this is our job. This is our task going into 20, closing out 2019, the 400-year uh Biblical scripture, Genesis 15 chapter plus 14 verse, talks about it. You know, God's going to do the judges. You know, it's going to be members of the Congress that, you know, hold impeachment hearings on the president. He's going to be judged. But the idea is how do we have a better conversation globally? And that's what Dr. Erikana Chiamori Kuo was doing as the ambassador union of the African Union. All the countries in Africa are coming together. So we can very easily go to Senegal, the largest African museum on planet Earth, and tell mm-hmm. our story. You know, what is you know, African contribution in the sixth region of the African Union, which is all of what happened in North America, South America, the Caribbean? We get to tell our story, and we're certainly capable of telling our story. Mm-hmm. Well, thank God yeah. for old folks and ancestors, because <laughs> had I not listened to them, I wouldn't have these stories myself, even though I just paint about them and I make them visual, and sometimes it's difficult for me to do, but I know these things happened, you know? And like you said, mm-hmm. there has to be some type of context. It has to be explained, you know, so that so that people will know why you have these horrible paintings, you know, because I think people are under the impression 
that art has to be something that's beautiful, you know. And I, I disagree with that. I think that if you're an artist and you come from a segment of society which grew up with oppression, your responsibility is to, is to do an art. And I'm not thinking that it's just painting and drawing and sculpture. I'm talking about singing and dancing. Your art has to reflect your culture. Your art has to reflect the truth, whatever your art is. If you're if you're coming from an oppressed segment of society and you're a singer, you need to sing about oppression, sing about eliminating oppression, sing about liberation, sing about the movement. Those are the things that we have to do. If you're painting, you need to paint about it. If you're dancing, dance, dance your dance about liberation dances. This is what we have to do if we're going to be creating things. You can't just make everything uh, roses and you know, pretty flowers, and that that can't be what our art is. Our art has to reflect our struggle, respect, reflect our reality, you know. we got to reflect the lynchings, the castrations, the burnings alive. We've got to reflect all of that in our art. I'm sorry, but I just believe that. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah, I'm wrong. It's, it's, no, you're not, you're not wrong. It's, 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 it's all in context. It's all in balance. Because I've seen your collection. You have um, studied in great detail the beauty of black women, and it's reflected in your art. I mean, there's some of the most beautiful pieces, you know, it's like because the, the, the subject matter is some of the most beautiful women on the earth. So it's reflected in your art. So it's, it's the entire human experience that we have uniquely expressed in the blessing of being an African person, you know, reflecting the melanin within us. So, yes, we have to tell the whole story. But, you know, it's like when you have a child, you you know, you don't just set the apple in front of them. You cut it up, you mash it up, and you get a little small spoon, sometimes with some plastic on it. But, you know, you have to put it in the context where they could they could receive it well. Uh, and, yeah. and that's our job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking, I don't know if you know the argument that I think it was Richard Wright posed to, I don't know if it's W.B. Du Bois or James Baldwin, but they were talking about, he was talking about how, you know, the African people, that we didn't have the luxury of, you know, painting beautiful sunsets, um, you know, that, you know, the, the artist's task was to tell the story of the people, you know, in the moment of the creation. And um, so, it's, it, you know, it sort of sounds like, you know, you're sort of, um, you know, coming up in, in the, Tradition of, of Richard Wright, you know, your thinking is in that tradition. Um, however, um, I think that, you know, if if the uh, if the intention is truth telling, you know, you will see the truth in the work. Uh, you know, whether it's um, it's a realist a realist representation or is abstract, you know, the moment the emotion, which is what art culture carries, the emotion you know, will be something that's tangible and that people who are supposed to be affected or are affected by it, you know, will sort of get the same kind of energy from that and and hopefully, you know, be moved to do something um, righteous with it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. I guess wow, I can yeah. So, any um, any concluding thoughts um, from from you know um, both of you, either of you, 
Um, this has been a great conversation, um, and hopefully, you know, the first of, of others. Well, mine, well. mine will be brief. The, the idea that um, this is a blessed introduction last night to uh, Wanda and, and Akasanya, and, you know, I would suggest that we have lunch maybe next week sometime before uh, we go back down to Gallery Combone South but the, the, the idea is that the art, the, everything, the culture, is it has to be expressed at a highest level. And that's going to be seen at the Crocker Art Museum, uh, Black History Month, uh, you know, one of the premier West Coast museums. And I think it's going to spark a global conversation uh, on how we heal because it's going to be Yoruba culture through the hands that have been touched by the ancestors. Mm-hmm. Well, my only thing is, Wanda, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And my final words will be from Dr. Kwame Nkrumah when he said, the degree of a country's revolutionary awareness can be measured by the political maturity of its women. That's for you, Wanda. Mm. <laughs> ah, thank you. Thank you. Well, enjoy your your lunch. Um my brothers, because I hear that's what's happening next on your schedule. <laughs> you take good care. Peace and blessings. Okay. All right. Odabo. Odabo. Okay. So we are going to um, rebroadcast... Uh, an interview with Adia Tamar Whitaker. She had she produced uh, the Bluesico at ODC. It was really awesome. But I think uh, it's um, along the lines of of our conversation, and um, and uh, so I think you will enjoy it. Well, we were supposed to be starting with uh, <laughs> um, with a uh, giant trinity, but oh well, we'll just get started and try it again a little later. We are so excited to have Adia Tamar Whitaker in the studio to talk about um, the uh, Ashe Dance Theater Collective's West Coast premiere of Have No, that's K in parentheses, N O apostrophe and then W. Have no fear of blues co. And that's gonna be October seventeenth through nineteenth. And Adia um uh Tamar Whitaker is artistic director of this nineteen year old Brooklyn based dance theater ensemble, Ashe Dance Theater Collective. And it's performed contemporary dance, vernacular movement, Afro Haitian and Haitian dance in the United States and abroad for 17 years. Like, oh my goodness, where did the time fly, right, Adia? (laughs) Wow, like amazing. You can already have your 20th anniversary next year. Like, wow. I know. It's been a long time. It's been a long Mm -hmm. time of doing this work. Yeah, and you've been traveling all throughout the world, you know, in the uh, African diaspora and elsewhere, Haiti or Haiti. 
Cuba, France, Germany, Spain, the Netherlands, Belgium, Ghana, Jamaica, and Trinidad. And when you're there, um, uh, you both study and teach dance. And you received your MFA in dance from Holland's University, which is in Virginia. Yeah, I just completed that. I just completed Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a lot of hard work, but I made it through. Yeah. Not really (laughs) an academic type of uh, person, but, you know, Mm -hmm. I just had to get my freedom papers, some more freedom papers. I totally understand. Yeah, yeah. And Virginia, you know, um, sort of honoring the 400th anniversary of of the Commonwealth, uh, you know, entrance into, um, you know, this particular hemisphere as uh, a, a place that had African people, you know, as possessions. Um, so that was in August. And so where's Holland's in relationship to um, oh, uh, Hampton? I, you know, I don't know where it is in relationship to Hampton, but Ho- Holland's was an old plantation. So it's what? just a deep, yeah, it was an old plantation. And so the people, the descendants of the Africans that lived on that plantation and, and worked as enslaved Africans still live on the land and are the groundskeepers and they work in the cafeteria. And you can visit this, like, the graveyard of a family. So I think it's the Locke family. They have their mm-hmm. graves in one place, and then they have the graves of their enslaved Africans there as well. So Hollins was deep. I could I didn't get over to the graveyards because it was just such such a journey for me. But um mm-hmm. just being on the land where Africans were enslaved and everybody knows it and then I guess it turned into a spa at some point. And then after mm-hmm. that, since Holland is a un- women's university, there were mm-hmm. the young women that attended there were allowed to have a young black woman as their kind of helper to help them, I don't know, carry their books or just, I don't know, just basically work for them. So that's kind Mm -hmm. of an interesting kind of strangeness that was also going on there. And it also is on indigenous land. We have to also remember Mm -hmm. that before all Mm -hmm. of our ancestors got there, it was indigenous land. So there's a lot of strong, like, psychic and spiritual energy just on the campus of Hollins because it's really old. And in the middle of the campus, there's a big, you know, like a big circle with a cross in the middle. So for me, it's a Dikenga. It's a big Congolese, you know, cosmogram in the middle yeah. of the quad with four houses on each side. So there's lots of energy there. And also when I was I uh, one of the parts of, big parts of, have no fear. Um, I refer to Margaret Wise Brown's book, Good Night Moon, the children's book. And so yeah. there was this big ballroom on campus that had this big green carpet. And every time I'd go in the room, I'd be like, in the great green room, there wasn't a telephone. And I'd get all excited. But there wasn't a whole lot of parents there. So it didn't really mean as much to my cohort as it did to me. But every time I would go in that room, I would just, like, even under my breath, I would recite this, in the great green room there was a telephone. And one day I went to the student union, and I saw her book in the student union. And I'm like, oh, my God, this book has been a part of my life since I've had children. I've had to read it for eight years. I memorized it. And I was like, do you have children's books on campus? And they said, no, we just have her book because she's an alumni. And so mm-hmm. I went back wow. and I looked at some more information to find out if she had been in the room 
that I would mm-hmm. go into and have this urge to say lines from her book. And it turned out that at the time she went to school there, it was a cafeteria. So she was absolutely in that space. So mm-hmm. that's one of the, the like kind of connective tissues that, that I was like, okay, let me figure out why this dead white woman is talking to me because mm-hmm. she's an ancestor as well. And I need to figure out what she, what her, what her connection to my work is because Every time I'd go in that space, I'd, I'd say those lines, and then when it was time to pick our the place we would perform for our thesis, I was like, I don't want to do it in the theater. I need to do it in that ballroom because it was like a gazebo ceiling, a big, shiny chandelier, and I don't even know if my ancestors would have been allowed in that space except to be in service of all the very, very dead white people on the walls because the whole space was surrounded by pictures of the Locke family, all these white elders and scholars. So I'm Mm -hmm. sure that my family would not have been allowed in that room at all if it were not in service. Um, So I was like, well, because I know that we probably weren't allowed in this room, I'm about to do this right here underneath your shiny (laughs) crystal chandelier on your green carpet in front of all, and it gave such a, a, a backdrop to the choreography and the singing and what we were doing because you know we got drums up there, we were barefoot, we had on frocks, but it wasn't. It was definitely not what we would have been able to do between the 15th and the 19th, 18th century. You know. Mhm. <laughs> wow, this is so amazing. Yeah. Wow. Place is everything, isn't it? Right. Right. It totally yeah, is, and yes. I think that. You know, like I was getting a lot of people like, you know, with with us performing at ODC, it's a mm-hmm. completely, you know, this piece or these, you know, everything that we're going to present was really, I got to a place in performing in the concert stage where I was like, you know, I, it wasn't enough for me anymore. And I'm like, you know, the people that inspire most of the work that a lot of artists do don't get to see it, right? Maybe they can't afford to come to the show. Maybe they have so many life things that are keeping them from the theater. So really this piece was designed as a model of, like, performance art, protest, and action because I was like, you know, it's fine to do it in the theater, but a theater is a very sanctioned space, and I'm interested in the spaces where we don't have permission. Like, Rosa Parks didn't ask for permission. She just said no. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't. You don't ask permission for the revolution to happen or for resistance to happen. And so I was like, you know, I feel like we're in a time where there's so much performing of the progressive and of the revolution and of resistance. But people are not really willing to be uncomfortable or to put their lives on the line. And the United States is one of the only places where we can at this time, maybe not in a couple weeks or in a month, I have an opportunity to present a work like this and not be murdered. And that, you know, I'm very I'm very present with the privilege that I have to be able to present this work, whether it's on the street or whether it's in a theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, wow. Yeah, um, I'm going to keep on running through your, your bio, and then I want us to talk more about, about what you call um, this work, an undoing spell to untie all the knots that choke the future from natural disasters and systemic oppression to forced migration. It's a work of both healing and resistance. And um, notice that um, you uh, you came through 
you know, that wonderful institution, uh, I don't know what it's looking like now in, in San Francisco, San Francisco State University, but you were probably there when all those wonderful um, elder women, African women teachers were there, and I want to pour an ashe to um, to Dr. Uh, Nasisi Caillou, who, who right. made the transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, those those were the ones that came and got me. Not, um, mm-hmm. Dr. 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 was my teacher. Dr. Bird is my teacher. Alicia mm-hmm. Pierce is my teacher. Malanga Costa mm-hmm. is my teacher. Carlos Antuno nice. is my teacher. Rakiso mm-hmm. is my teacher. Um, so many teachers. Miss Blanche Brown is my teacher. Michelle <laughs> mm-hmm. Martin is my teacher. Portia Jefferson is my teacher. All of them. They all they all brought me into being who I think I am right now. And um I didn't really know you know, I didn't know I was a regular Frisco, San Francisco youth. I didn't know anything about no conscious nothing and no drums. I just went to San Francisco State because I was in upward bound and I got that's the college I got into. So mm-hmm. When I met all these people, they really came and got me. It wasn't, I was like, no, I'm going to, you know, be a journalism major or something. And they were like, no, 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 no. You need to come on over here. And I was like, no, I'm not going to be able to survive as a dancer. I don't want to be, uh. and I had all these notions about, like, what an artist, you know, like what it is to be an artist and how I would just be struggling and hungry. And even though that happens sometimes, I just, you know, I always have to thank them for pushing me and, <laughs> Chasing me down and being like, no, 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 you come over here. <laughs> oh wow, that is so awesome. So, so tell us about tell us about the work um, because there there are a lot of a lot of parts to it. And also, I want to mention that um, that you um, you were part of uh, the the uh, what is it the professional you got a professional division U.S. Independent Studies program. Something or another at Ailey School. Oh yeah, uh, I just I just went. That's how I came to New York. Is I I got done at mm-hmm. San Francisco State in 2000, and then when I was coming, I was didn't know what I was going to do. So I bought a ticket to Cuba because I was like, let me just go and see if I'm just going to travel the world and study dance. Cause I you know I just was doing it anyway, but I I just didn't know what I was going to do. And like at the last minute, I think my mom got tickets to see um, Ailey at the Zeller Block. And Ron mm-hmm. Brown did Grace in that show. So ah. The Ailey Company was performing, and Ron Brown, I did Grace, and I had never seen anything like it. And so because I saw Grace, I decided mm-hmm. I was going to audition for the Ailey School the next day because I wasn't going to. I had auditioned the year before, and I didn't get in. And so I was like, mm, I, you know, maybe I'll go see the show. So I went to see the show, and at the last minute I was like, I'm going to audition. I went to Berkeley, I auditioned, and then I got into the professional division independent study program. And then, so that was June, and then I was in New York in September. Oh, wow. And then I started performing <laughs> in December. Oh, my. I was, wow. You know, yeah, it was quick. It was a quick little, this is your destiny, you know, moment. Yeah, yeah. It seems like you, you get those kind of calls. Like, they're, you know, you don't have to wander around. It's like... This is what we want you to do. The ancestors are yeah. telling us. Right. Yeah, that's nice. You know, sometimes yeah, you have to wander nice. around for a bit. It's good when you get it more direct, right? <laughs> and you listen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's always been that way, though. So I guess, yeah, I guess mm-hmm. that is a blessing. It is a blessing, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So so tell us more about um this wonderful Have No Fear a Bluesicle and and your you know, your dance theater collective and you know, all the different pieces that are you're pulling together that people won't know, like, wow, this was a real big thing. Um, you know, both sides yeah, of I, the country and you know, all these yeah, different creative lot. minds that are coming together and you know, the multiple genres, you know, there's dance, there's live music, um yeah, yeah, talk to us about it. So, um it began with um I start I choreographed the first section of Have No Fear. So Have No Fear of Bluesical is composed of three parts. The first part is called A Break for the Five. I choreographed I started to choreograph A Break for the Five, I'd say like two thousand seven for a show called Native Tongue that happened at OBC. The show was presented by Hasita Vlock. And so it was really her show, but she she wanted me to do work in it, or she asked me to do work in it, and I said yes. And originally it was kind of an idea. I knew that just from my personal experiences that um, my friends, a lot of the black folks in Frisco were leaving. They were going back down south um, when I was in San Francisco. And there was a point where I wanted to come back to San Francisco. My friends were like, don't come back here. Something like new and kind of dangerous and strange is happening and I was like, no, no, I'm going to come home. And they were like, no, no, don't come back because you're going to get caught up in it. And I was like, I don't understand. But, you know, I think they were describing, like, the prison industrial complex had gone from something that we were marching in the street about and, like, something that was over there that we were, like, standing up for. And it became, like, very personal and started to affect my family, their families, people we know. Um, and so it became kind of like... If you stay in San Francisco, you kind of have a couple fates. You'll either uh, get addicted to drugs or the cops will kill you or um, you, you know, turned out by just street life. Um, and so it was really hard. They were just like, it's really hard for black folks. So a lot of people are going down south. So a lot of people are moving out. And that's when gentrification really started to pop. And so my friends were like, just don't come home. There's just no, there's just not opportunities here for us like that anymore. And so when I was when I started to make work, you know, you can't make the same work that is relevant out here in the East Coast to what's happening in the Bay because the Bay is like a whole other thing. So although mm-hmm. I can do the work that ha- is happening out here, there's just way more diversity in the African diaspora. So the the things that we are talking about or talk about in the Bay, it's just, there's different issues you need to address when you're there because they're just different places with different populations and people from different places, you know. And so I decided I was going to do a break for the five, and I wanted to do um, a rah-rah for the, like, disappearing population of African Americans and just people of color in San Francisco. And so that's mm-hmm. how it started. So I looked at the, the model of a Haitian rah-rah and how it was used or it is used as a form of political protest, but then also looking using some of the, like, voodoo of it, like the sequins to reflect the negative energy away um, and also kind of creating this inner diasporic syncretization between not only um, uh, visual like aesthetics from Haitian folklore but also from uh, folklore that comes from Trinidad and Tobago and just kind of making this place where the diaspora meets and decides that um, we're all cousins and we're all Africans and we share a lot of even though our specific situations are very different 
we still are kind of um, speaking up against the same forces that seek to oppress us and silence us um, and take our freedoms away. And so that's how Break for the Five happened. And then it grew a little bit bigger when Mark Bamuchi Joseph brought us to the Bay Area to perform in the Living Word Festival, I believe, in like 2010, nine. We did it twice. Okay. We did like 2000, maybe 2008 and then 2010. And so it grew into mm-hmm. something bigger. Um, and it just kept growing and growing. And I feel like my pieces, all the pieces that I create are like children. And, you know, people, you know, in the society we live in, people want you to produce all these things really quickly and make pieces, make works, and what are you doing next? And I feel like that's one thing that I've really resisted is I've been like, you know what, I'm going to take time to grow this work to its full realization and potential and really see what it is. And if it takes me 20 years to do that, then I'm going to do that. And so this is the piece where I feel like I really dug my heels in and it was like, no, I'm not just going to keep making things to make things. I'm going to make things that have, that have relevance and are poignant. And so um, that's how a break for the five happened. That's the first section. The other part of a break for the five is that I'm the first, female in my family on my mother's side to not participate in the quilting tradition um, in our Mm -hmm. family and my family's from South Carolina and so that's a big deal Um, that was a big deal in our family and so for me because I didn't grow up in South Carolina because I just visited and I grew up in the Bay I always felt like a really strong connection to my family but that you know I'm always like the diversified cousin or the kind of outsider but the 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 how do you say the tradition the tradition of the Baptist Church although I'm not Christian at all it is very strong in me because my grandfather Reverend C J Whitaker was a Baptist minister um, and he was responsible for forming the first like Democratic Party in Greenville South Carolina so he was also an activist so that runs strong in that side of my family and so I wanted to participate in that quilting tradition with my mama's people because I was like you know I feel like they speak to me in dreams and they give me all this kind of um, inspiration in the work that I create. And so I wanted to be able to speak to them further. And so in creating a break for the five, this is my, like, this, these are my patches for my familial quilt or my ancestral quilt. This is like my telephone to my ancestors on that side of my family. Um, and then after I came, after I, I've been working on the Break for the Five, we performed it a bunch of times. It kept growing and changing. Um, and then in 2011, after I was in the Bay Area um, for quite some time presenting work at Counterpost, um, I became pregnant with my daughter. <laughs> and so my daughter was born on 9-11-11. She was born during Occupy Wall Street. And I remember people calling me, like, it's going down. You need to come out here. And I was like, I just had a baby at my house. Like, I've been in labor for four days. I can't come outside. And so my um, that kind of put me in a moment of, like, okay, well, I can no longer be a lieutenant in the same way in terms of actions. Like, I can't go outside right now. I might not be able to go outside all the time. So how can I participate in the things that are happening and the things that I still very much believe in and support without being on the front lines. And so that's when I think Have No Fear started to bubble. At that time, like a little bit after my 
my daughter was after she was born. Uh, I still was performing a break for the five, and I was trying to figure out like, okay, how do I do this? Because I can't. I mean, I can go outside with my baby, but when we get pepper sprayed, that's just and then my family's gonna like jump on me because I had a baby outside, in mm-hmm. in some kind of you know whatever. So I was I was really kind of in a place of stuckness, and I think what pushed it through is then I became pregnant with my son in 2014, and I was doing a residency in Trinidad. And um, while I was in Trinidad, or while we were in Tobago, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement started. So although we all knew, know this, these things were happening already, have always been happening, it just became way more highly publicized. And I was like, yo, like, I got to go back to the United States, and I'm pregnant with this little boy. Like, it's all bad. So, so yeah, so that's what I was like, how am I going to teach my children to protect themselves? Like, this is crazy. Like, I don't know. Like, this is, like, now it's a state of emergency. And I had had pieces that people had kind of warned me about that I had done, like little singing and dancing pieces that then later became a part of Have No Fear that that my friends that were folklorists was like, you know, you got to be careful, like, singing and dancing and all that because, you know, you're talking about people and they might come get you. And I'm like, well, you know, Nina Simone did it. James Baldwin did it. Bob Marley did it. James Brown did it. Like, if they did it, like, shouldn't we be doing it too? Like, didn't they show us a way to do it? And so... Mm-hmm. I think I was building the work inside of other works for a very long time, but I think I was I was maybe a little scared to put it all together. Into, I knew it was something, but I just didn't want to put it all in one piece because I knew if I did it like little by little, I could see how people would react to it. And they had some strong uh-huh. reactions, even though they were just sections of pieces. And so when I got back to Brooklyn, um, there was, you know, the gentrification that's happening and the dislocation, all the things that are happening in the Bay Area are beginning to still beginning to happen in Brooklyn. It hasn't happened in the Bay out here as severely as it's happened in the Bay. But um, there was some filmmakers that wanted to collaborate with some neighborhood artists, and they were doing a fellowship organization called Union Docs. And so we were connected through one of the dancers in my company, and um, they were, they are, they were three white women that lived like in the neighborhood. So they were gentrifiers, and technically, I'm a gentrifier too because I'm not from here. I'm not from Brooklyn, but I moved here. So, but my situation is a little bit different. And so, um, we started to work together. And for us, I mean, I took it to Ashe, you know, because Ashe a long time ago transformed from like just being a body of dancers and performers on stage to like a, a nation of mamas and babas and children and people that are all really taking care of each other kind of like how folks did during the great migration when you would move from your various parts of the south and you would come up to the city and even though you wouldn't have your blood family close you would make your so that's in the, in the spirit of the great migration we're, we kind of did the same thing and so i took it to mm-hmm. them and i was like you know these are three white women that want to do this film on us but you know white folks stay making money off black suffering so I was like, I don't know if we should do it. What do you guys think? And so they decided, they said, okay, yes, we will do it. But if anybody starts getting, like, major bread off it or anything, then we got to pump the brakes and we got to redo contracts and all this stuff. So Ashe agreed to do it, and we began the process. And for me, it was really like, okay, the new neighbors are here. They're not going anywhere. So instead of, like, just beasting out on the new neighbors, let's see what – 
let me try to be a human being. Let's share this lineage of being humans on the planet. Let's try to see what working together looks like. So we didn't have a whole lot of bumps and scrapes because, like I said, they're filmmakers. I'm a choreographer. We we share the lineage of art. So that really united us. You know, there was there was definitely cultural scrapes. And in the film, you know, there's things like I look like I'm a single mother when I have an amazing partner and I love him and he loves me, but it looks like I'm a single mother. And, you know, there's little things where I'm like, okay, you guys made some editing choices that were interesting. But I love them. They're wonderful people. And I guess they took this film all over the world. It won awards. And I, in the meantime, I just started going and getting my MFA and just living life and being a mama and being a choreographer, doing all the things I do. And then, like, a year later, it just had – the film had had a whole life. Like, when I was in Europe, I guess, I was in Germany, and then the film was in Poland, and the Polish people wanted me to come to Germany. It was a, I was like, really? I was just reading books. Like, I didn't know <laughs> that all these things were happening. And so that's how the second section of Have No Fear started, right? Because it, it, the, in the film, it's called Have No Fear. So after right. they made the film Have No Fear, then I was like, Okay, I, I think that's what this piece, this next section of this piece is called. And so when I then I started to go into my thesis, and that's when it really took shape. Where I decided, okay, I'm gonna we're gonna hit all these different ideas that really keep us silenced. And I really wanted to look at the idea if I I am a, an African American woman that has always grown up with fear. I've raised I've been raised in fear because. That's probably how your parents raise you. You just know not to act a fool because you're afraid either something's going to happen. You're always afraid something's going to happen or there's a consequence, you know, like a, such a thing. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, what if? What would it be if I really addressed white Jesus and how the iconography of white Jesus has negatively affected people of color across the planet? What would it be if I really wrote Aunt Jemima's quitting speech and I, you know, as a salute to, like, Aunt Jemima as the survival masquerade and, like, talked about how my grandma scrubs your toilets and irons your curtains so that I don't have to, so that everyone is clear about who we are. And, like, what if I taught my children rhymes, nursery rhymes, that would stick in their heads so if they ever got in a situation where they were faced with, police officers that didn't have their best intentions in mind. They would have this soundtrack playing in their heads so they would know their next steps and they wouldn't flinch or put their hands in their pockets so that they got hurt. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was there were several there were several motives for have no fear of the bluesical and one the most important one was to keep my children alive and to keep all of our children, especially Nashe, because between now between us now there's about thirteen children and most of mm. them are boys. And so I was thinking about our boys and how we were going to teach them, you know, whatever we could, because, you know, whatever can happen. It doesn't mean, like, they have this song in their head and they won't get hurt. But it, it may give them a very clear soundtrack as to their options. Um, mm-hmm. I was also, like, looking at the idea of ritual dance theater and 
<clears throat> the power of prayer because in African tradition, my elders always teach us that you have to be really specific in your prayers and that the power of word is very strong. And so the the songs that go with the pieces um, are very intentional and they're clear. You know, it's not, I've done so much work where so much of the, the music I've created is like coded and it's proverb and it's double entendre. And you see this in a break for the five, but and have no fear it's really it's it just says what it is and it does what it does. It wasn't about like creating the most intricate choreography and abstracting things so far that people couldn't identify what they were because I want to get Auntie Such and Such out of the laundromat to come and see what I'm talking about to see if she'll come to the courthouse with me and hold a sign. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to get you know the the this that foundation donor to see like oh that i that i've studied and that i've i have this certain level of technique it's really about people being together in a room in a space and trying to figure out and shifting it's not even offering an answer it's really like okay if we get together in a space and we shift then something else might shift because if you look at labor if you look at when a person is in labor, like, you really hope and pray that at the end of the labor that you have a child, that you have a person. But some people don't have that outcome. But whatever you, whatever the outcome is of labor, you still shifted, you still changed, it, changed, and you still grew. And so that's that's what I think that I'm trying to do, especially when it comes to this time and history that we're in. Nobody really knows what to do because all of these constructs of whiteness and blackness and other and all of these different things, we were born into them. And so we can we can have all of our decolonizing, our imagination, all of these different things. But in the end, we're all trying to figure out, like, what actually to do to shift the the like foundations of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism that keep us all stuck because we we live here, so we all support it. We're all a part of it, but nobody mm. really knows what we can do. And so my idea is real simple: it's like if we come together in a space and we actually shift our bodies in a space, then maybe that will cause some shift. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, well, we're kind of out of time, but I wanted to um, give you an opportunity um, in closing to um, maybe talk about, um, maybe give the names of of the members of Ashe, and I know you're going to have um, a special um, Oakland-based musician who also yeah. serves as the music director, um, and I don't want to mess up um, his name, so that's why I'm not saying it. Unless you do it, so, yes. I want to know if you could give give the give the names of of you know the other members of of Ashe. So this process has been quite challenging because the cla- the ca- cast is split on the West Coast. From um, even though Guy DeShallis is from New York and was mm-hmm. the artistic director of Ashe Dance Theater Collective for many many years, he moved to the Bay Area, and so he is the the fiddler in the work and he is the musical director of the work. We also have the extraordinary voices of Tossi Long and Zakia Shapeshifter Harris. They are just like gorgeous singers and amazing artists in their own right. Like aside from me, they have their own things going on and you should check them out. 
Um, mm-hmm. The other drummers we have working with us are Pablo Soto Campo Amor, and he is an extraordinary visual artist as well. And then we have Eliyahu Salam. Um, and so those are the Bay Area kind of Ashe folks. I would also put uh, Andrew He's a lighting designer, and he has been with us since Counter Pulse. So I would definitely throw him uh, like a shout out to him as a dope lighting designer. Um, mm-hmm. From the East Coast, uh, we have uh, Alexandra Jean Joseph. We have Brian Polite. We have Kendra Ross, Aaron Holmes. Um, ay ay ay! Oh no, Kendra Holmes, Tanisha Newland. Um, I think that's everybody. Yeah, I think that's everybody. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Those are all, right. Yeah, those are all the Ashe East and West folks. Okay, and um, the filmmakers again? Oh, um, I'm sorry. Imani and Zinga. That's the other one. Imani and Zinga. Oh. And Stephanie okay. Bostos. What am I doing? Bay Area, Stephanie Bostos. She's also in it. I'm so sorry. Stephanie Bostos is amazing. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it says the, the project's filmmakers include um, Beata. Beata Kalinska, uh, mm-hmm. Tracy Williams, who is also, she's also working with us, like art direction, like helping us um, do some of our social media stuff, um, mm-hmm. and Sarah Jacobson. Um, and everything really has been brought together as well by an organization called Purpose Productions, um, ran by... Austin Edwards, and um, our production manager is Marisol Ibarra. So I think that's everybody. <laughs> right. Um, so it's a whole village and, of people. Nice, nice. And again, we're speaking to Adia Tamara Whitaker um, about Ashe Dance Theater Collective uh, having uh, its West Coast premiere of Have No Fear, a Bluesico. Again, October 17th through 19th, um, Thursday through Saturday. That's next week, 8 p.m. And uh, that's at ODC. And uh, you can go to ODC um, dot dance forward slash bluesico. And ODC is located in San Francisco. And I'm looking for an address. Um, oh, here it is: three one five three 17th Street. And uh, tickets are fifteen to thirty dollars. And um, um, I think, is that everything? Um, yeah, do you have a website? I do. It's com. A-S-E-D-A-N-C-E.com. Okay, super, super. All righty. Oh, I know what I was looking for. There's going to be a talk on next Friday, um, October 18th at 630 at ODC. Uh, ODC right. is going to host you in a conversation, a public talk, presented in partnership with the Institute for Curata- Curatorial Practice and Performance based at Wesleyan University. So I think that part is free to the public. So folks will probably come out and hear you, you know, sort of ex- expound on, on the concept, you know, you know, with that, that MFA, you got the language too, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, Maybe you have MFA. copies of your dissertation for us to be able to take home. Um. <laughs> All righty. Oh, well, super. Yeah. Well, look forward to, well, um, thank you so much. Uh, thank to seeing you, so you next week. Me. Oh, you're quite thank welcome. You so so funny. Um, yeah, uh, you were talking about Counterpulse San Francisco and just Curtis uh, Gravity uh, is presenting his um, 
second weekend of Invisible um, this weekend and at Counterpost. I just thought that was kind of cool that, you know, sort wow. of you all are like crossing, you know, each other um, in the um, uh, in this conversation. So if you want oh, to say wow. hi to Jess, he's on the air now with uh, a couple of other choreographers, Sherwood. Uh, Adia. Ken. Oh, Sherwood, what's up? Hi. <laughs> and Gabriel Christian. Hi there. Hi everybody. I'm so sorry. That was very loud. <laughs> I was, was so thrilled loud. to hear Adia, to the the master who was already a master before the MFA. I have to say. Aww, <laughs> Aww thanks. Thanks. Okay, yeah. so take care, everyone. All right, safe travels. See you later. Bye. Good luck. Bye. <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for your patience. Um, I'm glad glad you were able to, to say hey, uh, Sherwood. I'm glad you're also able to join us because I know you're going to be traveling in a minute um, to your next hey, destination. Wanda. Hey, yeah, and and thank you so much, uh, Jess, um, for you know being available, Jess Curtis, to talk about you know your um, your. Um,